Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. Okay, everybody, joined today by very special guest, Taylor Keene. Omaha, Cherokee. Correct? That's correct. And part Denisovan, which we'll get into. I am. <laughs> I am. Part early hominid and then uh and then as all of us are. But you never hear Denisovan. It's different, right? Yeah, like cause I you know You always talk about folk like me wind up folk like me wind up throwing a little bit of Neanderthal. I've got both. Western Europeans. Oh, you got a little of that too. I do. Okay, we'll get to that. I bet a lot of people don't even know what a, I don't, I'm not really clear what a Denisovan is, other than I know it's Another hominid. Like, I did a fair bit of research last night because I really didn't know what it was. So, yeah. and I'm not saying I'm the expert now, but I, I had the same question. Just like if you were a deer today, if you were a deer today wandering around, like let's say you're a white-tailed deer, and you're wandering around, and you'd be like, oh, there's another kind of deer. It's a mule deer. Hey, there's another kind of deer. It's a black-tailed deer. Um, Once upon a time, you could have been a hominid walking around. You might have been, oh, hey, it's another kind of hominid. We'll get to that. Um, Clay, you were on Rogan's podcast. Was that fun? Yeah, it was for sure. Really unique experience. I listened to there. a little bit of it. I didn't quit because I got bored, mind you. Oh, wow. It just, okay. I just haven't gotten through it yet. Oh, you didn't quit. I thought you said you did quit because you got bored. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> oh, if, I, if that was true, if that was true and it's not, I wouldn't have told you that. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. I would have said something like, um, I would have said something like, uh, Thing. Good job, Clay. Yeah, I said oh, that was a great job, Clay. Yeah, no, I was, no, I, no, I thought it was good. Did it you was, enjoy hanging out with him? Oh yeah, and, and and I didn't get to spend a lot of time with Joe, aside from just in the podcast. But unique experience going down there. I mean, you know, just being on his podcast was probably the. It was it was less. It was less intimidating than I thought it would be, and I I, I won't lie, I was slightly intimidated. But uh, and, and just in a normal kind of way. But once once you got in there, Joe's a great guy to talk to. Great interviewer. He's very gen- he's very generous and gracious. I did not know what he knew about me, so I didn't know what we were going to be talking about. You know, the 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 conversation flowed along a pretty standard like Clay Newcomb talking point. Mm-hmm. You know, deal. Mm-hmm. Other than if there were a few there were a few curveballs which were fun, but no. Nah, Really yeah, cool. but Joe's like, uh, he's very, I feel like he's, as an interviewer, he's very sensitive to things. It's almost like he picks up things floating through the air. Like, I feel like I could show him your thumbprint and he'd be, he'd tell you a bunch of 
Like he'd tell you a bunch about the person. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I feel like he could listen to episodes of Bear Grease podcast, listen to like two episodes of Bear Grease podcast, and kind of really like understand what to talk about, what to ask. Like yeah. he's very sensitive that way. I can't tell what's uh, like, there's a good there's good news and bad news. I want to talk about drought and heat, but I also want to talk about the TRCP land access appreciation thing. Here's the deal. Uh, this is going to sound Montana-centric, but, but understand me that it's it's not Montana-centric. In the state of Montana, there's a program called the Block Management Access Program, and how it works is this. They take revenue drawn from people buying hunting licenses, okay? And they take this revenue, and they enlist private landowners, ranchers, farmers, other private landowners. They enlist private landowners into the Block Management Program. Once private land is in the block management program, you hunt it for free. So non-resident, resident, I mean, every, we're talking about everything from elk to turkeys live on these places. And you come and hunt block management. And I think a lot, like a lot of things that are cool, such as national forests and other stuff, a lot of people kind of think that it must have like one day fallen from outer space and there it is. And they don't realize the sort of like effort that goes into it. The landowners do get paid to enroll in block manage, but it, trust me, it is not enough to offset the inconvenience and, and hassle and risk. It's just like, like no one is going into block management, uh, licking their lips about how rich they're going to get. It just doesn't work that way. It, it's an act of generosity to put your land in block management. Um, we got this idea, uh, from my brother who was involved in, in another car incarnate. What do you say? Carnation? That's like a kind of condensed milk <laughs> what do you say like it's, an it's incarnation. incarnation another right. incarnation because it's not a reincarnation <laughs> which we got to talk about because that thing about weasels being doomed oh, yeah. so we'll hit that some other day stay tuned for that that's a tittle phil i'm gonna make phil get my interest meter out when i talk yeah, about that's that gonna business. be a neon much as phil hates that interest meter um what was i saying oh so we're doing a thing called the TRCP Montana Farm and Ranch Hunter Access Appreciation Sweepstakes. A finely crafted title, mind you. Again, Montana, I think I came up with that. Or it was, it was like, this is what happens when three people try to come up with a title together. It's called the Montana Farm and Ranch Hunter Access Appreciation Sweepstakes. We have gone. I, what, what, what are you smirking about over there, Phil? It's just a mouthful of a name. Oh, That's all. Yeah, It's a great name. I like it because it lays it all out. You don't need a subtitle with a name like that, right? <laughs> uh, it's a sweepstakes donation. So we got all kinds of crazy things you could win. Tons of things. And you buy tickets, and then what we're going to do is we're going to take all the money that we get from this, every last penny. We're doing this in conjunction with TRCP, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. In conjunction with TRCP, you buy these tickets. And you win a bunch of stuff. And then we're going to take all the money and buy things to thank people who enroll their land in block management. We're not talking about sending them like coffee mugs and whatnot, like buying them farm and ranch equipment, gate mechanisms for, you know, like uh, automatic gates, calf shelters, stuff people need, help them get stuff they actually need. That's going on right now. Up till when, Corinne? Enter by August 1st, 2021 at midnight Eastern Standard. 
$5 gets you one entry. Between 10 and 24 entries, you can get for four bucks. If you buy more than 25 entries, you get them for three bucks a piece. You can only do 500 entries per person. Dude, this list, like when I try to chainsaws, meat grinders, oh, wow. meat crafter knives, full first light kit, bino harness kit, javelin pro hunt bipod. When I try to load all the things, like smoke comes out of my computer. That's how many things are available. We got to tell them the link. Where oh, to go. Yeah, that's a good idea, Karen. Tell them. Uh, it's support.trcp.org forward slash BMA. Yeah. So if you hunt Montana and you use BLM, and if you live here, I guarantee, almost guarantee you do, or you visit and use block management, jump in and start one of these in your own state to reward and thank people who open their lands up. Okay, now on to the bad stuff. Holy cow. The heat wave and extreme drought is so bad they're airdropping air dropping water to keep bighorn sheep alive. In Nevada. Yeah, Nevada Department of Wildlife. Replenishing desert bighorn sheep's only source of water for miles. Without intervention, animal populations will decline. Ecosystem viability is threatened. Nevada is experiencing intense drought for the second year in a row. Last year, I didn't know this, Las Vegas went 240 days without measurable rainfall. This year, 40% of the state is in what's called exceptional drought, which is the highest level of drought, according to the National Weather Service. Elk, tule elk in California. There's a population of tule elk in California that are dying from lack of water. Dying of dehydration. They had a historic water source that they would use at this point, Rees National Seashore. How, how does that pronounce? Rees? Rees? What is that? I think it's Rees. Point, point Rees. There's been an ongoing issue where the elk are using water and feed that was meant for cattle. So they put a fence up, but only some of these elk can get at this fence. Can about a third, 152 elk, about a third of the population died of dehydration. Because they don't have any water source on their on their ground, they can't get around the fence, not to the fence, but around the oh, fence to sorry. get to get to the you know food and water. This is a tricky one. I feel like yeah, get into it. Well, one you have like a cattle lease, which is you know the reason the fence went up mm-hmm. because the elk are competing with these cattle, and so you got to start to think about whether you know what's more important, you know these animals that we all own or someone's private cattle, you know? And again, we don't know the nuances. Well, they, of, I know they have a great, they have a grazing lease. Right. They have, service a, land. <clears throat> they have a grazing lease, but most places, I mean, here where you have grazing leases on public land, you don't fence out wildlife. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So it was for sure public land. It's national park service land. Mm. They're being sued. Hmm. So the historic the historic water on their side of the fence usually would have been enough, but it wasn't this year. Yeah, yeah. One of the you know I gather it's like this like highly fenced area, and I also gather that it's like a a, a pretty managed herd. But they're, yeah, they're not able to get to water. Listen, man, I've tried this a lot, 
I've tried sitting around telling myself about all you know the insane heat everywhere. I've tried sitting around being like, "There's no such thing as climate change. There's no such thing as climate change. It's just hot." But son of a bitch, man! After a while, <laughs> you can it's hide. Getting around, you can hide. Right? It's 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 like getting hot. It's gonna be bad for wildlife. It's just, yeah. You can say that. I don't think you can sit around saying it's not. You can say, like, I don't care. You can argue about what's causing it. You, you can argue, argue about, about the cause, but it's not. If you like to hunt and fish. Change is coming. Yeah. Cue yeah. song. Dude. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing. This is, this is a crazy one. Kevin Murphy sent this to me this morning. So San Jose, San Jose, California passed a gun, like a, a really weird gun control measure that, that's very puzzling to me. Basically, that if you own guns, you pay a tax. And the tax is supposed to offset what it costs the city to address gun-related phone call, gun-related crime. So you can imagine someone who's got like a pistol they bought on the corner, tucked under the back shed, and they're planning on, you know, doing armed robbery. And they're like, "Ah, I forgot to send in my tax money." <laughs> I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, uh, now and, where, and where they're supposed to get liability insurance? Yeah, buy liability insurance. Too. I think if you want to find a parallel, what, uh, San Jose, what? California. Okay, got it. As I struggled for a parallel, I thought of this. It'd be like if you, you could, one could make the argument. They could say the First Amendment rights cost taxpayers money. Okay. Let's say there's a there, there's 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 a protest. There's a protest of, um, th- there's a massive protest to protest. Uh, what it can be something people. Let's say there's a massive protest to protest the the outcome of the presidential election, and there's a massive counter protest to protest people protesting the outcome of the presidential election. So you have all these people with mixed ideologies mm-hmm. exercising First Amendment rights. Okay. There's a police presence. There's a police presence. They clo- there, there's cost of business because businesses close. There's cost of police because police come out. They monitor it. There's, there's community meetings that are set aside to plan like safe protest spaces to cordon people off. It's very expensive. So someone could say, if you want to exercise First Amendment rights, you need to pay a tax because it yeah. costs us money to have First Amendment rights. And someone would say like, but... The peaceful people aren't committing crimes and burning down buildings. Why should they be paid tax? Pay a tax. To which I would say, wonderful point. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd. It is absurd. Yeah, it seems like just a punishment. A punishment it's of just, legal gun owners. It's just grasping. It's so. Well, Kevin Murphy made the point that it's it's like a path towards only that the rich and privileged have weapons. Mm. Those that can afford. Just to, like Moonshine to, and the Appalachians. Wait till the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> bear, uh, Clay, can you give us the update on Bruno the Bear? So uh, first tell us about what you told us before about Bruno the Bear. So Bruno the Bear, what, I did a report on him on this podcast. He came from Wisconsin and traveled all the way down to Arkansas, and he gained national attention going through crop fields. Did you see that, Taylor? Do you remember I did that? Not. From the, he, he gained national attention 
like this black bear walking through cornfields and stuff and and he was extremely uh un unalarmed by people so people would be masses of people would be following him and he just kind of mind his own business and he never got into any significant nuisance trouble in like a thousand mile journey or, or however long it was tell him the theory tell him the theory about how he why he did <laughs> so, what he had so to so there do. was there's lots of theories about why this bear made this journey and you know the biologists chimed in and were like you know bears only travel that far if they're looking for new home ranges new mates or food there was theories that per, so he was heading from the north to arkansas we have a bear population in arkansas and he walked across all this country that did not have resident bear populations. So there was a theory that he climbed on a boat on the Mississippi River, a grain barge, and was Dude, one climbed into my garbage can last night. I'll believe that he climbed into <laughs> yeah. a grain boat. Yeah, there was a theory that he climbed into a, <laughs> a, a, a grain barge and traveled up north and got off the barge, which is bizarre. You know, probably oh, didn't happen. And then he was just coming home. He was coming home. Uh, I love uh, that theory, uh, man. Because he followed the river corridor. Yeah, homing instinct is really strong. Like when they trap bears, like that bears very rarely don't come back to where they came from. That and sounds so, like a good plot for a kid's movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we'll make it a pet dog that gets lost on vacation. It's already been done. <laughs> so this bear, he he wintered in northern Arkansas, as I understand it. This is where you left off last time, right? Yeah, he was just in northern Arkansas. And people were having And my a... mom was texting me saying, Clay, please don't kill Bruno because I'm an Arkansas bear hunter. <laughs> yeah, because people She's were having a, people were very worried about Bruno showing up in Arkansas because there's the he could have gone into a hunt area. It was, yeah, that's right. And and so now this I don't have all the details on, but he was basically trapped as I understand it, in Arkansas, potentially in Missouri. He may have gone back over the line into Missouri. He was trapped by game and fish and relocated to northern Louisiana because basically the bears out of Arkansas are spreading in like all directions, southern Missouri, northern Louisiana, east Texas, south, uh, eastern Oklahoma. And for whatever reason, they chose to release him in Louisiana. Sad story, boys. He got hit by a car in Louisiana on Tuesday, and they had to euthanize him. No. So Bruno is dead. I'm sorry. The things he's seen, man. Yeah, no doubt. There was there That's was a theory incredible. that he was a that he was a tame bear because of how unusual he was with his uh, how he interacted with people. But you mean tame, like not like habituated, but tame like a circus bear? Yeah, like somewhat like it was a bear that had been like released oh. or something. But I that, I don't buy that either. Just zero fear of humans. Yeah. A tame bear probably wouldn't have survived. No, and a tame bear would have gone and tried to get in somebody's refrigerator in their house. What was so amazing, he traveled that far and never got in trouble. Hmm. And so they were trying to do him a favor by taking him to Louisiana. So, long live <laughs> the on, beast. I, I, they, they I, were trying. I think it's not common for bears to go north and south in their migrations, right? Just not that far. Home? Just not that far. I mean, they might travel... You know, there's documentation in Missouri and Arkansas of bears traveling like 150 miles, but a thousand miles is very un. It's just not heard of. Maybe you know? he was an, an evolved bear. He, he was kind of an emissary or an ambassador. Yeah, the yeah. Forrest Gump of the bears, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a, he was a scout. Yeah. He might have been a scout. <laughs> yeah, he was something special. He's like, if I don't come back, don't go south. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Yanni, tell about that mountain lion you were telling me about. 
Oh, that uh, yeah. last week I was with our, our buddy Bart George, and we were filming uh, his mountain lion hazing study that he's doing over in uh, north of Spokane, Washington. Which you ought to explain real quick. Oh, yeah. I remember we talked about yeah, that Yeah, you know what? Yeah. After being there and hanging out with his whole crew for a week, a couple times now, I feel like we should go and do a podcast with the whole crew and chit-chat with them, because he's got... Bruce Duncan, as you know, yeah. is, you know, a, a, a real wonder of this world. I found out the other day, Bart thinks that he is the man living that has treated the most cats in this country right now. Hmm. At roughly 1,500 cats treed. Because all that research and government work. And just, yeah, and all the outfitting he's done and the fact he's been doing it for over 50 years. Huh. Um, yeah, pretty interesting. I've got two names. I'm not going to say their names. We'll talk later. But he, uh, showdown. Does he win the cat lady trophy? He should make, should make I don't him. know about that. <laughs> uh, and then Jeff Flood, who's the wildlife specialist for the counties up there. Very interesting guy. Been trapping and doing stuff his whole life. Um, but is Bart still with? Yeah, the Kalispell tribe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the Kalispell tribe is doing, uh, they're the ones that are uh, funding the study, doing the study, but he's working um, in cahoots with uh, Washington Department of uh, Game and Fish. And then, like I said, the uh, Stevens and... Uh, can't remember the name of the other county now, but the sheriff's office. Um, a lot of people are kind of chipping in to help on this study. But what he's trying to do is because they're having just a, they've got a real uptick in depredations and human mountain lion conflict and interactions. And so he came up with a study to see if hazing might help just kind of keep the mountain lions like o- away from humans a little bit. And so how he's doing it is they catch a lion, they put a collar on it. They come back a week later. They know exactly where the lion is. They walk towards the lion with a speaker on Bart's chest, on, on just hanging off his backpack, that's playing the Meat Eater podcast. So he still plays the podcast to the lions. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. No, I got to, while well, I was see, there. The problem is the lions are going to hang out because they're so interested. You got to give those lions an interest meter. <laughs> Phil, on top, on the collar, put an interest meter dial on, on that. Well, I'll tell you what, while, while Sam was explaining the... Uh, lobster uh debate that was recently on uh we got to within uh i think 11 yards of really? a mountain line. they were titillated wow. wow yeah i mean 11 y- at 11 yards could you see it yet no because she's like in like you know three or four furs that were all bushy you know around the bottom there were not the furs weren't did you bushy. know she was that close yeah because we're looking at the gps so you're like 33 feet away there's did a lion did you see her bust out of there no. when no, she, what? Not any of the three lines that we did that to, that we walked up to. The other one was like 50, and then one ran at like 70 yards, and not a one did we see. just slipped out, and you never heard You're them. kidding me. Uh-uh. <laughs> it's trippy. So it how just many made, have you walked by And this one, knew? the closest one. Well, 11 yards, and it left. Yeah, and then that one literally has been living in this area that if you walk down the hill five minutes, you're on like a... a, a it's a rural highway, but right on the other side of that road is basically like this little community on like a, it's like a lake community okay. with all these little houses and condos and stuff. And, and there's a trail system where this cat's been hanging out. So that cat sits there in the trees and listens to dogs and humans and stuff going by her and, and cars all the time. And like totally just, you know, that's her home. Yeah. Wow. It, was, it was wild. So anyways... So what he's trying to see is if hazing works. So when he comes back, now he's got this the cat on a GPS collar. So he walks towards it playing the podcast at 80 decibels, which is quite lo- loud, mind you. I mean, it's like my voice 
projected like if I'm excited is probably equal to roughly 80 decibels. And doesn't it feel like distinctly sort of postmodern that that they will in the future be listening to you talking about them listening to this show? It's like staring into a mirror and there's a mirror <laughs> behind you. <laughs> <laughs> This is getting deep, deep. Um, yeah, yeah, and he's totally lost. <laughs> I'm just trying to stay on track with how, so that everybody can understand how this product. No, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Question oh. that won't throw us off. Yeah, that this particular cat had he been in trouble before? She had not been. Okay. Really? So we're hazing a cat that's not been in trouble though. Mm-mm. Okay. No, because you in in these parts or those parts where I was. If they've been in actual trouble, like if there's been a depredation, they're they, dead. Gotcha. Yeah. Can I let me interject with the thing that Bruce told me? The Bruce you're talking about. Mm-hmm. After that, when when you know Washington had two summers ago had the first fatality from a mountain lion, first human fatality from a mountain lion in state history, and then, then shortly after, like a month or two later. Oregon had its first human fatality from a mountain lion in 98 years. I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? But then it's, it happens twice in one summer in two states. You know, and then you're like, wow, what's going on? So you want to draw conclusions from this, but maybe there's none to be drawn. And when I put it to Bruce, I was like, what do you think about that? You know, on one hand, he's like, it's freak, right? We'll go another 100 years and no one will get killed by a mountain lion. But if there is something there, what he, he put out is this, like in his whole career of doing work on lion control for the state in the early days of his career if someone saw a lion you came out and killed it people didn't want them around and it'd be like you'd see one on your porch it's a dead lion it doesn't matter if it did anything wrong killed a dog it's just dead and he said as tolerance has increased and now you know you don't just like kill every single lion that crosses the street in front of a car um he says it's probably going to be that there's just going to be more interactions because our tolerance has shifted mm-hmm. and we don't just dust off every single thing we can dust off because someone's scared and of it. there's a lot more lions there's a lot yeah. more people there's a lot more people going into wild places so yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and those wild I, places I know, are I becoming less guy. wild because of you know us moving it to them and living in them hey, i'll tell you a podcast guest and i can't say his name but I know the guy that tracked down that mountain lion and killed him. I'm being serious, dead serious. I know the, the track down what mountain lion the, and killed the, him. The, the the lion, and I don't know if it was the fatality in Washington or Oregon. Well, if it's oh. if it's Washington, we're talking about we know the same person. Well, I think I think this was the Oregon lion, and I know the guy that went to that scene, tracked that lion down. I mean, went to the, you know the the site where the person was killed he he said it was it was a wild story well, yeah. and, and he it was a was that the two mountain bikers no that was washington oh. this was a lady this was a this was a, a woman well yes yes anyway we'll talk later. Tell, yeah you want to do one upsmanship on podcast no, yes. no 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 bring no. it on no 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 <laughs> keep going Yanni. no 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 <laughs> hurry up yeah, we got to hurry up because I think we have a great one sitting right here across from us. We're gonna, exactly. We're running out of time here. Um, so they they walk towards him playing this uh, podcast, and Bart's watching the GPS, and once the cat leaves its bed or wherever it's sitting or, or sleeping at the moment, he marks that distance from him to the cat. Then he watches the cat on the GPS and see how far it goes. 
how far it flees, which he's taking other um, like environmental data points as well. And basically he's trying to figure out how much energy is the cat willing to expend once it's been bumped. And then consequently, after it's been hazed multiple times, is it willing to expend more energy because it doesn't want to go through the hazing again? So once he picks up those two data points, uh, they cut the dogs loose, which usually come from however far behind, however far he had to walk to get to the lion. They track him to the where the fresh mountain lion track is. Then they run the lion. It's usually over pretty quickly. They jump the lion into a tree. The hazing, the first hazing, actually is via paintball. So they'll sit there and pop, 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 pop as many times as the cat will take it. The dogs are gone at this point. And as soon as the cat climbs and jumps out of the tree and runs, that's it. They've, that's the hazing. Then they repeat that with, minus the um, paintballs three more times and see, you know, they're, cl- again, collecting those data points of how close did they get and how far did the cat run before it stopped and chilled out, you know, after it heard the meter podcast at 80 decibels. In order to determine if there is a problem line... Could, uh, is it possible to get it to change its behavior without euthanizing yeah, it? Yeah, and again, it's probably never going to happen with problem lions. It'll probably just happen with lions that, like like you were saying, cross the street in a place where there's a bunch of little kids living around, or there's a lion that's been seen a couple of times near a Boy Scout camp, or whatever. Gotcha. But like I said, as soon as they to cause help a, them <clears throat> To help them not become problem lions. Yeah, right now, no, they're north of Spokane. There's a very, very low tolerance for... Uh, cats and public perception is down, like is negative right now with cats, unfortunately, and they aren't happy. A lot of them aren't happy with the way that the Washington Department of Fishing Game has been handling it. And so they're, you know, that's why Jeff Flood, like it gets a they little, want, it, they it, want it them to compl- kill, they want them killing more lions. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. socially, you know, complicated, but, uh, so yeah, it pro- it'll just happen with cats that are like, in areas amongst people they're seen, and hopefully they can haze them a little bit and keep them alive. Okay, but talk about the, the, the super line. Oh, right. So one, it has been tried in the past of relocating lions that were problem lions. And again, there's so little research done on lions and known about lions that people just, we just don't know enough yet, right? So a lot of times they thought, oh, it's like one lion causing the problem, you know, but they shoot the lion and then, you know, three, two weeks later, you know, in the same zone, another sheep gets killed, right? So it wasn't the same lion. Anyways, they, they tried relocating some in one, I forget the exact number, but it was up there. It was like 75, hundred miles. They moved it and it took the cat literally like two days and it was back at the same farm and killed another sheep. <laughs> And it had, it had been ear tagged or marked somehow, so they knew that it was the yeah. same cat. But what was interesting is that it's from that journey, its pads were just worn off. Like there was almost no pad left on his paw. Mm. Man, they, just they know liked, how, they know how to get his home. Spot man, mm-hmm. wow, yeah. I don't know if I could pull that off. If you blindfolded me and dropped me off, I'd like to miles know away. from a biologist the mechanism that works inside of an animal to have that homing instinct because it's got it's picking up data from somewhere. I mean, it's not. I mean, they're they're picking up. They have some. There's something happening. I'd like to know the mechanics of yeah, it. Yeah, we had pet pigeons one time, and and they the neighbor people were complaining about them, shit in everybody's house and whatnot. And my brother had to go to a work meeting. He went quite a ways away. I can't remember what it was, but. 
almost 100 miles away. He had to go to an overnight work meeting. So he took the pigeons up there and cut them loose. When he got home, they were already home. <laughs> they beat them home. But they're famous for that. Mm. Mm. A new paper published in the journal Nature details the release of new DNA evidence extracted from sediment in Denisova Cave. Oh, that's where the Denisovan name comes from. Right? Or is it mm-hmm. vice yeah. versa? Or or vice versa. Oh, okay. It's a cave in Siberia. Oh, it is. But did 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 the cave get named that because of what's there? Or did the did the did the humans humans get named how, how help me out? Demons <laughs> are named after the place. Okay. Because we don't really know what they were called. Okay, so that's so it wasn't that we knew we named it somewhere else. Th- there was a it, man, there was a modern man that lived in the cave. That was somehow had a name that started with a with a D, as I understood it. So they called it that kind of cave. This is my understanding of it. And then they went in and found the stuff, and they called the people that name of the cave. Is that what you remember, yes. Taylor? Yep. Yeah. I slept in a cave. Um, <laughs> no, I slept in a cave in Wyoming that had been slept in. Welcome by to the a, your podcast. Taylor. I slept in a cave in Wyoming that had been slept in by a, some cowboy that went crazy and ate some people. And they named it after him. Yeah, I slept in that cave. <laughs> you haven't eaten anybody yet. No, but <clears throat> you're still young. <laughs> okay, let me back up. New DNA evidence extracted from sediment in Denisova Cave in Russian Siberia. Previous analysis of ancient DNA extracted from fossils found in Denisova Cave have revealed that it was inhabited by Neanderthals, which sometimes, I think they're back to Thal, but for a while it was tall, Neanderthal. Neanderthals, Thals, Denisovans, and a hybrid of the two. But few fossilized, few fossilized remains have been found in the cave, so it's unclear when different groups visited and in what order. Hmm. But what's the time period, Steve? It's a long time ago. Now this study provides a timeline of occupation with over 700 sediment samples dated from 300,000 to 20,000 years ago. So the cave could have sat there for quite a long time between visits. Hominids 300,000 years ago. That's interesting, right? Yeah. I think part of the reasons that I have Denisovan DNA because we don't know the story of how indigenous peoples came to the Americas, truly, do we? There's theories about the Bering Strait theory. Mm-hmm. But when you find DNA going that far back. In Siberia. In Siberia means that we're different in some sense. But we don't really know when indigenous peoples came here. But to have that antiquity of DNA that flows into me today is fascinating. Yeah, it's that close, right? Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. I mean, like, are you saying that there was another? Are you saying they didn't? There's other theories of. Well, I know there's other theories other than the Bering Land Bridge. You know, water access through the Northwest. And God forbid stuff. that Indigenous peoples got on boats at some point. Figured that out. Yeah, but we can get, get into anthropology and John Wesley Powell and the Powell Doctrine later on, but. It just begs the whole question of how indigenous peoples got here. Yeah. Do you, do you, um, that's a good question. 
or not a good question, but it's an interesting point. Do you, do you contest or do you like, if you look at sort of the academic consensus, okay, the academic consensus being like some point in time, probably less than 30,000 years ago, sometime around 30 to 20,000 years ago, the first Americans entered, you know, the new world. Okay. Entered what's now North America and South America via some sort of land bridge that connected Alaska with Siberia. Like when you hear it, like, do you, do you, is your viewpoint, I don't know, is your viewpoint, that sounds right, that sounds wrong? It sounds right, but I think there's more to the story. Uh Because now we found all sorts of anthropological evidence that indigenous peoples were here 32, 35,000 years ago and Mm -hmm. beyond. So that goes beyond the Younger Dryas event. And makes you question how indigenous peoples got here so so long ago. Oh uh, yeah, where the where fa- is that? Where is that? Because I'm familiar with Cooper's Ferry, which would have put things back to like seventeen thousand years ago, but thirty thousand years ago. Where where is that? Thirty two thousand plus down in the tip of the Tierra del Fuego. I'll have to look at my nose to see exactly who was the researchers doing that. Mm. But the main fact that points to me is the actual multiplicity of tribal languages in the Americas as a function of mathematical time. 10,000 years was not enough to have the diversity of languages. Oh, mm. yeah, that's mm. an interesting point, man. I, I, explain that a little bit or just go into that well, a little bit. Well, just the variation. There's six or seven main tribal language families in the Americas. But to have them diversify into such distinct dialects and different language families would take a lot more than 10,000 years to do it. If you're assuming that the foundation group, if you have this assumption that the foundation group was some single wave of individuals who were... That's not enough. Yeah, I got you. But if there's multiple waves of it. But the question for me is, why is it so inherent that we can only look at the Bering Strait land bridge theory? Oh, man, I feel like people looked at a lot of theories. You ever hear of the Salutrian theory? Sure. Which was dismissed on, like, I think, like dismissed on. Well, let me just real quick. If you, if I get it wrong, but there was this idea that if you looked at Paleolithic, when we use the word Paleolithic, we're just talking about Europe. When you look at like Paleolithic stone technology, right, thirty thousand years ago, forty thousand years ago, was remarkably similar to stone technology of indigenous Americans from. 14,000 years ago. So someone, rather than being that different groups of people came up kind of with the same idea independently, there was this idea that, aha, they had to have been influenced by Western Europeans. Or vice versa, Steve. Or vice versa. Oh. And we don't know that. Yeah. But that begs an interesting question of, was there some type of knowledge that was inherent to both and then it came from somewhere else? Yeah. Certainly there was... A lot of Europeans here earlier on than Columbus. But again, that becomes one of those questions. Why is the Columbus discovery doctrine such a big part of Western American thought? Do you have a theory on why it is? I've often wondered that, like, why is it... John Wesley Powell, first head of the American... good at marketing. Yeah. But, but, yeah, because, like, Columbus never hit... He was never even. He never hit the. He never Americas. hit what became the U.S. Like he landed in the West Indies, right? 
how how did it become to be that 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 school children feel that Columbus? It's a great marketing job. But what are they? What were they marketing? How how Europeans discovered America and civilized it versus looking at the actual history of how many people were here in the Americas and what they were doing prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, man, we got a lot of balls in the air right now, but I want, let's do this. I want to talk, let's talk about this one. We got into the, we got into the question of how indigenous Americans arrived and when they arrived in the question mark. But l- let's talk for a second. If you could explain how many people were here. Ah, I was hoping we were going to get to that. Yeah. I mean, we're like out of, you know, we're out of, I don't know, if we're, I don't know. we're not out of order, whatever. How many people were here? A lot of different estimates. A uh-huh. um, bunch of different camps from anthropology historically have gone over, but it's been a matter of political debate though. To me, the question is why. There seems to be an influence in anthropology, especially in amateur am- anthropology, to diminish the number of people that were here. Mm. And that gets to... To make the crime not as severe? Right. Yeah. Right. So what's being ignored entirely, regardless of how many, estimates have gone up to over 100 million, with the bulk of those being in, in Mesoamerica. So the heartland of the food explosion in the Americas, whether it's Peru or, or Central America... That's a high extreme number, though. That right? is a high extreme yeah. number, but that was for the most part. That number is in in uh, Mesoamerica. Okay, the numbers in North America at the most liberal were around sixteen million. Sixteen million people. Mm-hmm. Now, this would have been at the at the peak pre-European arrival. Pre-disease, right? Pre-disease is the big point. So that's one of the things that most people don't understand. When understanding the history of America is looking at what actually happened here before. So we have accounts from the Spanish conquistadors of these advanced societies and vast numbers of people. And then when they got their butts kicked and then came back upset, then nobody was there. So one thing, one of the things that anthropology has been able to uncover now, National Geographic is doing a lot with this, but use of technology of LIDAR, et cetera, to find all these ancient villages, whether they're in Central America or in South America. Um, but it was smallpox for the most part. You can throw in some plague, whatever else you want. There's been traces of it found. But whether it was Canada, now the United States, Central America, South America, no one was immune to the impact of smallpox. And... Uh, for the most part, those extremes go between 85% and 95% decimation rates. 95% of the population die. And so when we're talking about an impact on these societies, um, if, you know, which 5% is left? Were they the most wise? Probably not. Were they the oldest story keepers? Probably not. But what was left out of the 5% leaves us with a cultural amnesia. Oh, it, it, like coming out of a pandemic, it sort of gives you... And we're upset about what <laughs> what actual percentage of people died from the pandemic and we were terrified. Yeah. It's way what's, sub what's, one. What's, what's yeah. Sub one? Mm-hmm. Wow. Imagine but, the wow. world of 95% of everyone you knew and cared and loved about was gone. But mm-hmm. that, that's what I think that I'm not trying to draw a parallel. Like, Please don't think I was trying to draw a parallel between smallpox epidemic and 
COVID-19, but I was saying like for a year we were invited to imagine, right? We learned the sort of lexicon of pandemics, you know, a new generation learned to, to like think and talk about contagion and pandemics. Point being, if you imagine that 95% of Americans were carried off by COVID-19, some amount of time elapsed, and then someone showed up and wanted to sort of categorize and describe us culturally, you would probably want to say, oh, no, no, oh, oh, there's a big misunderstanding. Um, We all just died. You see, and we're in, the, you know, we're in a period of tremendous turmoil right now. Hmm. You know, it would be similar to, because I think that, do, do, I don't know if you have feelings about the book 1491. Have you read 1491? I have. He talks in there. I like, he, I like Charles Mann's work a lot. He compares in there accounts of people traveling down the Mississippi, say, um, post smallpox. They can't find anybody. Right. But they'd encounter like city or towns and cities. And they're like, oh, everybody left. Was their idea. Well, they, I mean, they packed up and went somewhere. It was the best they could come up with. You right. Know? Or unfortunately, that those vast cities or trading networks were not made by them. So that's, you have early anthropology trying to understand what happened. And they found all these, this evidence of these mound builder or the Mississippian societies. Mm -hmm. And the first bit of evidence they did was go to the local tribes and say, hey, what do you know about these? And they're, we don't know. Mm. But when you put in to the equation that 95% of the people died, then you're gonna have culture amnesia of nearly everything. Perhaps safe stories, cosmology, the remnants of agricultural lifeways. If this all would have started happening in the 1500s, pretty much when when pretty much Europeans started says. coming here and bringing smallpox, so what you're alluding to is that so that's when the 95 percent decimation would have started. But then, like Cahokia, yes, you're saying that even at that time there were remnants of ancient civilizations yes. that the natives that were alive knew nothing about. So there was some other, potentially some other catastrophic event that happened pre-European arrival. Is that what we're, is that what we're saying? Could be, or it could just be a major change in an urban experiment. So you see the rise of the Mississippian culture uh, somewhere around 900 AD and then around 1000 1050, 1054 was the big year. It was a big supernova in the sky. If we were to see a, a star that hung there 10 times brighter than, mm. than Venus for two or three months and then hung out for another couple of years, stars in the sky seem to be a very important thing to human beings, influences, religion, etc. And so you, you have at some of these places, first and foremost was Cahokia. Uh, of course, we don't know what the name was. But that was a local name that they that they found from it. But began the rise of an urban population and a massive trading network, which goes back to the question of where did they get that model from? Mm -hmm. Was that an impact of Phoenicians, European societies coming? Did it come from us and went over there? Very very fascinating. But regardless, places like Cahokia and the rise of the Mississippian cultures. Um, 
dispels the myth that America was a you know untapped wilderness. That's what I love about Charles Mann's work, especially in 1493. He's talking about the impact of the Columbian Exchange, flora and fauna going over one direction, and flora and fauna coming back. How did the potato get to Ireland? How did baby corn get to China? Why was there corn found in the Ark Ark of the Covenant? These are interesting mysteries. Huh. Yeah. What happened to a lot of the copper in the Great Lakes that was mined out because it probably wasn't mined by indigenous peoples because there's no record of that being in, in vast cases. So the mysteries of America go well beyond what our understanding is today. But hopefully between anthropology and history and conversations like this, you know, eventually we're going to figure it out. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. 
I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Can you explain Cahokia a little bit? I mean, massive, you did, but like just a little just more detail. Massive trading network. It was an empire for sure. There were boundaries. There were markers. There's all sorts of stuff we have in the anthropological record. You have in the Mississippian cultures the urban in, uh, center that was Cahokia. And it's at the confluence of the Missouri, Mississippi, and the Ohio rivers, which effectively give you a north, south, east, east and west um, water passage to bring things there. It was a massive mm. trading network for sure. Because of the rivers. No, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yep. And it's just across from modern day St. Louis and Illinois. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it was a, it was a trading empire and uh, with it came boundaries, um, East coast marine shells, um, arguably precious stones from the Southwest, obsidian, many, many, many things being, being traded but uh, back to the, what was happening there was these grand stories being told. Uh, ultimately, the primary story, or arguably the oldest story in North America, was about the first humans. So we have first father and first mother. Oftentimes, she's known as Mother Corn or Earth Mother, and they had a number of progeny, depending on the tribes. And ultimately, there were 10 sons and, and uh, two daughters. And that was in the time of giants, and the giants were competing with us as well. And we have evidence of this through the anthropological record. Um, ancestors of my mother tribe, um, the Omaha, at a place called Picture Cave, about 100 miles outside of the urban center of, of Cahokia. It's one of these places that been, has been so desecrated that they won't tell you exactly where it is, but there's all these pictographs of all these stories, battles between the giants and first father. And within that tree of life, the, the first humans, were, of course, were from above. So they were part of the upper realm. And first father, he also carried the name of uh, White Plume, but ultimately he became interested in understanding the powers of the lower realm, but probably that notion of yin and yang, that there's a sacred balance and harmony. And he said... Um, a spirit wolf down to the lower realm to explore. Uh, but that was taboo. And so one of the water spirits ate it. First father became upset with that and made his own journey from the upper realm down to the lower watery realm. In some of our stories, he gambled. In some of the stories, they dueled. But the water spirit, it was a beaver spirit, uh, won the battle, took his life, and uh, kept his head and his body send it back up, soulless without it. And thus enters the stories of one of the sons called Redhorn and his two sons, the twins. I refer to it as the Redhorn Trilogy. But uh, he was the one that you find all of these wonderful flint clay carved figurines uh, out of Spyro in the outskirts of Cahokia. 
but tell the story of, of him. He had a clan name that was probably along the lines of he who was hit with deer lungs, probably had to do with a clan taboo, hmm. uh, probably a, a deer clan type of name, but thing, things that you can't touch, things that you have the rights to do and things you can't do. And that was probably had to refer to that. And eventually he became a very, very powerful character in this Mississippi cosmology and history. And ultimately the giants became agitated with the humans and these battles occurred back and forth and contests. And one, there was a race and the giants being bigger were gonna win, except for the youngest one, he who was hit with deer lungs, turned himself into an arrow and won the race. Then they had a great uh, stickball match, whether you look at the ball courts of Mesoamerica or the variations today amongst uh, uh, stickball of the Cherokee, we called it the little brother of war. Um, versions of shinny, uh, which has probably influenced a lot of field hockey and, of course, uh, lacrosse. Little brother of war. Little brother so of war. So stick, the stick games were preparation for future war. Yes, they were brutal. Mm. I, I played when I was young. Mm. Brutal. But, so that's still something and they, that In Mesoamerica, they were played to the death, weren't they? And they did in this case, too, and that's what happened was um, – he who was hit with deer lungs became the most valuable player, and they beat the Giants. MVP. MVP, and all of all of the Giants team were were killed, except for one woman, and she was uh, a red-haired giantess, and she was said to have been very beautiful. The tribes had different names for her of what she wore, etc. And she said, you may kill me, or I will take one of you as my husband. And so ultimately, that's that union between her and the figure that was to become Redhorn. Um, they had the, the uh, Thunder Twins. Ultimately, in a scene of uh, domestic bliss, um, he who was hit with deer lungs was then married to the giantess. And depending on the tribe, the stories changed a little bit. But ultimately, she was teasing him as she was cleaning a deer and was going to take the lungs and was going to throw them at him. And he says, no, don't do that. And all the brothers said, oh, don't do that. We were just teasing. And he explains to everyone, no, you really shouldn't tease me because I'm not really your brother. I'm from the upper realm and I was sent by Earthmaker. So he had a series of four trickster heroes that came here. And he was the fifth in the final to help um, bringer of knowledge to humanity. Hmm. And... Uh, Ultimately, after that, he explained his true form, and he spit into his hands and covered his big, long braid, and it became the color of red ochre, thus all things sacred, back to the uh, impact of the Neanderthals, Neanderthals, Denisovans, all of these things about ritual and uh, art, etc. That was our version here. Ultimately, after becoming... Um, Redhorn, then he also became his star visage as well, became the morning star. And there's many, many stories on all the Plains tribe and the Suing tribes about what that role was. But uh, then became the ultimate battles as his sons, the uh, Thunder Twins, went down and fought the water spirit and defeated it and brought back the head of First Father. And so that his body became unified once again and became the great ascension story of North America. So all great spiritual destiny, rebirths become the focus of cosmology and, and religion mm. for that matter. 
whether Could, it's Jesus or Muhammad or first father in this case, this was the story that was celebrated at Cahokia, was the spiritual ascension of first father back to the upper realm. Mm. So our father, stories are as, as father grand Abraham as... Father Abraham sons. <laughs> many sons had father Abraham. I mean, I just think it's just so interesting that I mean, it's something, it's something so big and giant, which, cause you're saying it's, it possibly was the, the, this largest city ever on this continent or the earliest biggest city. And at the city. time it was, it was the third largest city in the world. Right. Hmm. Yet, you know, I never heard of it. You ever heard of it, Steve? No, I only heard of, you know, what you would describe as like the Mississippian culture, the mound builders. But no, I don't. I don't. I'm not familiar. with Can the we term. get into the mounds a little bit? Because sure, even reading to. your chapter of the book, I, I, I'm not 100 percent like sure. Like, what were the mounds all about, and why are they associated with these people? You know, I visited that serpent mound. Yeah, I can yeah. tell you a lot about that one too. It's absolutely fascinating with its links to archaeoastronomy, as above, so below. Um, so many of the mounds, as as we're we're finding. Uh, especially through archaeoastronomy, that it was very much looking to the stars and trying to take those stories and to plant them here. Make um, a connection between the two. Yep. And you had the rise of places like Cahokia. Uh, you see the role of corn and bean and squash coming to, to uh, North America. And where that those modes of agriculture were then population exploded of indigenous peoples. Tied that with the religion of the stories of first father and the ascension, and then you have this this, this recipe for civilization. That's where food and the religion yep. came together to yep. form civilization. Yep. At the confluence of those two is where you find civilization here. But it became a massive trading network and empire, and those stories were shared. Um, trading for the most part. At the city center, you had uh, fifteen to 20,000 people uh, at the actual um, epicenter of all those mounds there. And, there. and there were hundreds of them, and we've lost many of them um, due to the construction and, and progress of East St. Louis, et cetera. But uh, ultimately, you had this grand plaza and the grand uh, mound itself now known as Monk's Mound. But uh, all of those were built in fairly rapid uh, succession. You see the reign of Cahokia from around 1050 to uh, began to wane around 12 to 1300. And we're not exactly sure. How tall sure are why. these mounds, just to give perspective? Oh, I want to say that Monk's Mound, I have to look at my notes. Um, I mean, they're, they're big. They're big. Maybe 50 feet in elevation. Uh, I'm just guessing off Higher pictures. than that, probably 150 200 stairs up those, and then okay. and there were steps. And so the question, pyramids. the question is, how did they get built? You know, Dirt. They, right? Well, right, yeah. but like, how did they? Or you know, one of the questions is, how did they move that much earth? A lot you know, of people. Yeah, I know yeah, the yeah. the serpent mound. They didn't know it was there until air travel. It was recognized from the air. They thought it was like just a natural. Look like a hill. Elevation. From the air, you could realize it was this hundreds of yards long serpent with a head and a tongue. Oh, I see. No one knew. I mean, the, the, people that, the, the people that were living there didn't know it was there until someone was like, holy cow. I mean, it's huge. Mm. Mm. And Recent it's got all, there's all kinds of stuff about its orientation, which is interesting. Yes. 
a lot of that comes from uh, my dear friend, uh, Dr. William Romain. He's probably the leading archaeoastronomy expert, and he's done work all around. But started in the 80s with Serpent Mound, that the undulations of the curve on one side are, are tied to uh, movements of the sun, and on the other side, movements of the moon. But what he discovered even more importantly uh, after that, along with others, was that its orientation is pointing towards stellar north. So the head and the tail line up perfectly. Uh, but it also helps measure um, what is at the center, what is the pole star? What is it today? What was it 5,000 years ago? And regardless of the wobble or precession of the earth, it's still different radiance could point to the same thing. But the story itself you'll find within most of the tribes, the Cherokees, we have a story about that. And it's about how the uh, serpent ate the sun, but it's a constellation that you see at uh, sunrise on summer solstice, that that constellation would, would move towards the rising sun and it appears that it was eating the sun. But oh. we still have those stories today. Yeah, and that's, there's some aspect of that in the serpent mound too or somewhere where they used to think it was eating an egg or, or some uh, mound effigy they thought was eating an egg, then someone says probably a sun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but then you also have, have parallels between what does the egg mean metaphorically? Is it knowledge, Sophia? And then you get these comparables to the rest of Europe as well. You know, what is the sacred feminine? What is the sacred masculine? And perhaps that mound work is a, is a combination of both. At the very least, it was the rise of civilization in the Americas well before we knew uh, about the same type of civilization from Europeans. So typically we define civilization as mass food and religion coming together. So hmm. the, the rise of the three sister agricultural lifeways uh, probably came up from, from Mesoamerica in terms of cosmologies. They're, they're all very similar. But uh, you had. Can you explain corn. the term cosmology? Cosmology, you know, just where we come from. Um, all of our stories, our indigenous stories, for the most part, are, are very well tied together. But our original stories talk about that originally our homelands were in the Seven Sisters constellation of Pleiades, and that we came here on what most of the tribes called Journey of the Souls, and uh, and our. In my mother's tribal cosmology, um, the story talks about that in the beginning, our souls were like stars in the sky, thought but no form. And eventually one of those souls, one of those stars asked the question of itself, who am I? And that question burned within that soul, that star. So that star went to its mother, the moon, that's part of the cosmology that all things sacred feminine come, come from the moon. And said, Mother, who am I? Oh, my child, she said, I was afraid you were going to ask that question. Hurry, before you forget, go ask your father. So he goes to his father, the son, the sacred masculine. Father, who am I? And he immediately chastised him and says, My child, be very, very careful with that question. Who am I? For that is the most important question we have as a soul. But that star, that soul was like us today, gossipy, can't keep a secret. And soon there were four of them that asked the same question. And that signals 
the beginning of the journey of the souls through the dark rift of the Milky Way to here. Our stories say that we're guided by Venus, the morning star, to get here, the planet next to us. And when those souls landed, it was an all-watery planet. And they took the form of four animals. And this story is basically referred to as the earth diver myth. And there's variations almost across all the tribes. And they took the form of four animals, and depending on the tribe, but ultimately one of them dives down into the deep waters and brings back up the clay in the earth. And uh, Turtle was the first one that asked that question. The soul said, who am I? Felt so bad that gotten the other ones into this new mess, this new uh, conundrum that asked to put the clay on its back, and then that became Turtle Island. And that's the story of this continent and us coming to this world. And the first humans that came out of the water after that, that's the beginnings of the cosmology. The, the beginning before the beginning. Um, that's, that's the story that's in uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yes, because we all have different yeah. variations. As you told that story, I was... I was, I, I thought that's where you were going, but it, Robin's being, uh, tribe, the Potawatomis, they have a variation of a uh, woman who fell from the sky. Sky woman. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. <clears throat> so, is it fair to say, and just just so I'm clear, that then cosmology could be like uh, an indigenous religion based Absolutely. upon the stars? Absolutely. Okay. And so we have all those variations, which is another function of time. Those stories, that story and its origin comes out of Siberia. So mm. uh, there are. So they have the oh, same. So there's, there's similar. There's a similar narrative, or th that's from people there. Yes. Huh. And then you can measure the variations of the story based over time to try to get an understanding of the an antiquity of that story. Huh. But from an indi an indigenous perspective, stories are everything. The wa yeah, the watery planet, um, that's very common, right? And even in even even in like the Judeo Christian tradition, it's common. Sure, there's there's an element of it with the with the notions of the great flood. Yeah, for sure, flood, like a watery planet. Mm -hmm. Huh. There were a lot of parallels that I saw in uh, so the book we discussed this earlier. Uh, Taylor and I did about this braiding sweetgrass book. Uh, Robin, Kim, how do you say your last name? Robin Wall Kemmerer. Yeah, but I saw a lot of parallels between. I mean, you didn't have to stretch it very far to see parallels between that story at some point and you know the book of Genesis. I mean, there was a tree that had that people were punished for for eating the fruit of and different things. But just yeah, it, it was it was two interesting. different trees: the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. Yeah. So back to the cosmology, the tree of life is what's at the centerpiece of an understanding of a of a physical attribute of that. So we have the the great tree of life and it is the axis mundi of the universe and in its branches is the upper realm uh ruled by the thunder beings, the thunderers and they're and their messengers, the thunderbirds, and then the roots of the tree of life is the lower watery realm, which is inhabited by water spirits. Chief amongst them is the underwater panther or the underwater serpent. Cherokees, we call her Uktana, but mm. uh, parallels to stories from Mesoamerica, for sure. Mm. Kukulkan, Quetzalcoatl, etc. But these are the things, Steve, that I 
get immersed in the stories and the yeah. storytelling. It's captivating to most people, children and adults alike, I've discovered. If you, when you look at your history, the history of your people, um, is it puzzling to you that that people like us, like Western Europeans, is it puzzling to you that uh, we're pro- that, that we're more drawn to those questions as well, like more drawn to the history, the deep history of of this continent than we are to the deep history of our own continent? where our where our ancestors came from like i really have no desire you know i don't have i don't wonder about western europe i don't wonder about paleolithic i mean a little bit but i don't like pay attention to the paleolithic tradition there but i'm very interested in the deep history here but i could but i could see that you would view it as you you might are you might view it as like not my history at all but i but somehow i feel like it is is that, is that troubling to you that I feel that way? No, it's not troubling at all because I think that's so important. Um, one of the reasons that I want to come and share on podcasts like this and to learn from others is to have a deeper understanding of what is the provenance of this land. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. All those stories that I've just shared, I mean, the truth is greater than any fiction. The stories that happen at these places, the stories that were told about the the giants and and the thunder beings and all these different aspects of indigenous cosmology. It it gives a provenance to this country that most people don't realize is there, but it belongs to us all, a greater understanding of what was happening here. There's lessons in history, things to be gleaned and to be learned. Um, Perhaps even with, with Cahokia and some of the others, there are forebodings of what happens with large urban experiments. Mm. Can you can you talk about the 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 giant people? Yes. I have heard um Bigfoot enthusiasts. Here we, we talked go. about this before this show. You did. <laughs> Bigfoot enthusiasts like that story. And they will sometimes say, "Oh, you can find evidence of Bigfoot in the mythologies of Native Americans because they talked about a race of giants." Has to have been Bigfoots. Um, do you? Do you has know, to be. I'm, I'm voicing. I'm voicing. <laughs> you know, a, a, a fringe element of you know. I'm, I'm voicing the the perspective of a fringe element of Bigfoot enthusiasts. Only to. I'm only doing that to invite you um, as a way of inviting you to um, offer any insights. Is it a metaphor? Like, is it a metaphor for something? What, what was the rate, like, in the mythology or in the cosmology, what was the race of giants? Do you know what I mean? Does it refer to a specific thing? Um, you find these stories throughout a lot of the tribes. Um, back home in uh, Nebraska, but we say, Nibadaska, that's the Omaha word for the Platte River. It means flat water. Hmm. But, uh, we say it again. Nibadaska. That's a, that's a beautiful word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh. I think Corinne and I like, talked about called this. called the Platte. <laughs> <laughs> or the Missouri River, which we call Nishuda, which means smoke on the water. And what it, and all the all the Plains tribes uh, give it the same name in their language. But what it refers to is before that river was dammed up and it had this powerful, you know, 
kinetic motion, especially in, in the winter, back when winters used to be really cold, then you would see this frozen fog bank that would go above the water. And that's what it means, smoke on the water. Huh. Mm. And uh, we have lots of stories around around that. I want to. I want to get. I gotta. You got. You I gotta, gotta interrupt him. So you, there's two questions there's, here. There's gonna be three in a second. Well, I want to hear him talk about Bigfoot, but I also want him to answer your question about where the giants came from. Yeah, but I want him to two say. A, I want things. him to say a whole sentence in, in 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 your native language. I don't care what the hell you could say something bad about me. I just want to hear it because I like hearing the the river names. Well, I would be truly remiss if I didn't introduce myself properly. There you go. So that's our standard introduction that we would say in our tribe about the name that we carry. So means that we're all related. So whether it's white man and Indian or from whatever part of the world you're from. So we in, are a gre- all in a greeting, you would we say always that. Greet you would meet, this is meeting a new person. Yep. So You would the, say, we're all one. That's say it again. A we thou wonga they. Okay. You're not off the hook on Bigfoot. Oh, well, we're going we're gonna to okay. get to Bigfoot. But okay. So that's so that's the beginning of the greeting. Yep. And so that, that translation, I, I carry the name of um, Bison Maine, of the uh, Earthen Bison Clan, of the people that move against the current. That's what... Uh, Omaha is the corruption of Umaha, means the people that move against the current. What it had mm. to do with uh, our brother and sister tribes within our language family. And at a certain point, we separated from each other, uh, probably in the diaspora coming out of the Great Lakes region. Um, those movements probably referred to uh, our separation along the Mississippi or the great old man. Oh, Hamid. People that move against current because they because this is a group of people that traveled upriver. We went upriver, upstream is another and dispersed. Yeah, Omaha, yeah, huh. Omaha, and then you have um, no shit. That's pretty good. Quapaw, um, down from your neck of the woods, mm-hmm. uh, we say Gachpa. It means the downstream people, mm. and then you have the Osage. Wajaje means children of the middle waters. Really? Mm-hmm. So all of those, I think Korea and I were talking about about this before, but so many American place names are indigenous. Yeah. That we have no idea. A, and no idea. We transliterate it into English and say Osage and Quapaw. I like yep. the word you used, corruption. <laughs> it's, it's powerful. <laughs> My kids are always like, why is that place named that? And I used to be like, ah, it's probably some guy's name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Taylor, like, go through them. I mean, it's like, I mean, I've, it's I've, just the states, cities, the everything. States, the cities. Streets. Dakota, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, Oklahoma. Uh, Kansas is interpretation of what we we say Konze, which means uh, the wind people. Hmm. They were a clan of a larger group hmm. of of our of our language family, but it goes on and on and on. I assume Michigan, Wisconsin. Massachusetts. But it is, it is kind of interesting sure. though that there was some sort of. Uh, you know, want or interest in not completely just renaming it and calling the next next state Steve, and then the one after that Newcomb. Well, well, they well they did that up in the Northeast. But, sure, certainly they when, did. But am I it, right? I mean, some of the, some of those names would have been more European, like New York. Sure. Uh, but then the further they got, these territories were more wild. And I know Arkansas is a is a native name, and I've heard. A, 
the name translates into downstream people. I don't know if you have heard that before. Hmm. But anyway, I'm just guessing. Where uh, I grew up in Muskegon County in that's, Michigan. That's for sure indigenous, right? Yeah. My, my understanding, it, it, there's a huge swamp there. And it's, it's like the Muskegon River Delta, but it's the Muskegon River flowing. And the, the delta that the Muskegon River makes as it flows into Lake Michigan. So my understanding... Um, and, and, you know, the way everybody explains it, it's a, it's big swamp. Okay. Like swamp area, whatever. But just to kind of give you, this is, I'm not gonna tell you anything new. Here's a joke that would be trafficked when I was a kid. It would be that, oh, uh, an Indian was water skiing and his ski broke here. And he said, muskegon. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You need to cut that, that out. No, it'd be like, that, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm like. <laughs> Taylor's I, laughing. I, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not telling him. I don't think he's going to be shocked that people tell Indian jokes that are derogatory. I mean, I didn't make the damn thing up. I'm just saying it's like a thing people, it's like a stupid ass thing people say. And why is that, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Why do people like to belittle things? Maybe they don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> What the real history is? Yeah, why? Mm-hmm. Why do you? Yeah, why do you like to? I, I can't explain why people like to belittle stuff. It's I don't a, know. It's a part like of why it. you want to? Like why would you want to diminish something? I don't know. That's that's why I wrote a chapter in my, in my book manuscript called "The Founder's Dilemma of America." Mm-hmm. Why do we have to create stories like Thanksgiving? Yeah. When in reality, the majority of what we think about as Thanksgiving is a lie. And definitely belittles the Indian slave trade in in New England, uh, the the Mohegan uh, Pequot Wars. Uh, there's so much history that we just don't know about. Mm. But it's much more convenient, much more easy to say, "Oh well, there's the Pilgrims, and they were saved by the local Native Americans." Had a hell of a party. Had a hell of a party. The only time Thanksgiving was used was the Governor Winthrop, I believe, was his name, after he sent a military party to slaughter over 100 different tribal warriors. And when they came back, that's when they had a Thanksgiving. So when you juxtapose reality versus the myths that we come up with, but this is also part of the myth of in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they still teach that to That's school cold. children, but most of us know that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a parent who's raising kids in America, um, I don't know how I don't know how helpful it is to them. To uh, I'm not really interested in bringing them up in an atmosphere of self-loathing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know that it's doing them, that it's setting them up in a good path. So I think that there are complexities, there, there are astounding complexities to history. But I think that the way we communicate with kids is parable. Sure. Right? And if, if you find there's, if there's, like, there's value in love of your place, there's value in love of your country. There's value in love of your fellow man. I think that it's, it's like, 
there's a pretty good argument to be made for giving them when they're young somewhat of an optimistic vision. Right? I think that that's probably th- this is not like the Muskegon stupid shit like that. Just communicating to them that there's something here that you should that you probably want to take care of. Right? But I mean they could be equally enthralled with the story of turtle saving this planet. Yeah, but I don't know that story. Being, Other than you, Sturgill Simpson mentions it and uh, Turtles All the Way Down. But you know it now. I've shared it with you. I'll tell them. I'm going to read up on it so I don't get the details wrong. <laughs> Listen, I'd love to tell them that story. They'd be in trance. What, what I think you're saying Back is to, just that we, we've distilled tell down, them, we distilled down the, our history into very simple, like, you know, just flashpoints that are easy to communicate. So, I mean, like, yeah, humans want to live in the now and sometimes want to look back at the past and just see it as this, like, thing that could be subbed up in one sentence. And for whatever reason, Columbus was able to market the world marketed that Columbus found this place, so that's what we still teach. I mean, I I think what you're... I hear what you're saying. It's like, it's easy to simplify things, like, really small, and those things then become wrong. I mean, because you can't tell... Complex stories with very simple things. You can't sit them all down and be like, you know, there's an argument to be made that uh, um, there's no free will, right? That everything's spelled out already. You're either going to be the way you are or not. Nothing you can do about it. Um, people are horrible. Uh, good luck. That's, well, I don't think, that's not a good way of going about it. Why is it but, one or the other? <laughs> and not, also, what is it? say to our collective consciousness if we exist on myth and continue to be okay with that i don't know well i think i think the 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 thing is is that now because of the world we live in we can find the accuracy in stories so here and you talk about thanksgiving helps you know and i've and i've heard this before but like that that helps us understand probably the way that we've been marketed well for sure been marketed to and so we can bring out more truth inside of the way that we exist from here on out just because we know and i think you can find more separation between the optimism that you're talking about steve and like these bastardizations that are harmful and have implications Mm -hmm. today just stuff we tell our kids yeah and the truth shall set them free right yeah yeah I told, listen, what I'm saying is like, what I'm saying is probably like, I'm not doing a good job of articulating it. I'm just trying to, um, ex- I'm expressing the idea that there are certain sort of legends and mythologies that are, that are told because they're effective. Sure. You know, and I don't think people sit around weighing out, weighing them out too thoroughly. I get that. Okay. It's it's much easier to have history tied up in a pretty little bow oh, yeah. for us, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. It's like the Blitzkrieg hypothesis, right? It's much easier to believe that there was one event that killed all the all the megafauna, right? Yeah. You know, um, I was surprised to see that Wikipedia still is is really hangs on to the Blitzkrieg hypothesis. Academia's moved on, but Wikipedia's doubled down. It's like the Bering Strait theory. That's you know, there's a lot of work been done. Graham Hancock did a wonderful job and America BC? No, America before. But he goes into this whole understanding of what you have in American anthropology around 
around the Clovis First peoples mm -hmm. and how anthropology just held on to that, held on to that. Academics' careers were destroyed whenever they found something counter to that. And so you have this whole um, uncovered history, this provenance of America that may go back a lot, lot longer than, yep. what, than what mm -hmm. most people are comfortable with. When I started, when I first started dabbling in anthropology, just like reading academic works, there was, it was right around when the Clovis first idea was falling apart and there were still people that held on to it, you know, but that was kind of like that, that was a debate that was happening back then. But to get back to where we're supposed to get, do you, is the, is there a metaphor to be found in the giant people or like, what do you think that that meant? I think that they were giants. Um, they were a competing race from our stories that Earthmaker made before us. And they became, um, they lacked humility. And uh, they were too pompous. Mm. And then ultimately, depending upon the stories, but uh, there's an incredible place right outside of Omaha, the um, Skeedy people, the Pawnees and the Rickeras, and it changes a little bit based on the dialect, but Pawhook is what it's called, and it was the origin place for the Skeedy people. And uh, there was a number of the Council of the Animals. Out of the five sacred sites, only one of them is left, and that's Pawhook. And uh, from it, it was said that Back in the time of giants and sacrifice, that was a very important place. And ultimately, that's where Earthmaker Creator decided to flood the earth to get rid of the giants. And he bade all of the human beings and the smaller animals to go underneath into the council of the animals. And therefore, they rode out the, the uh, flood. And then they were led by Yellow Buffalo Woman. And they came back out and, and emerged there. So that mm. became a very central place for a lot of the plains people. They survived the flood. Survived the flood mm -hmm. by going underneath the ground. And you have a lot of those types of stories. Yeah. Kiowas have those stories yeah, too. There's biblical reference to giants too, the Anak and Genesis. Yeah. So that, that's a theme. But not the kind of giant that Goliath was. Yes. Goliath was just a huge dude, wasn't he? He was a giant. Yeah. He, uh, Ammonite. They weren't all big. He, yeah, he was a little bit of a, of a phenom amongst his people, but. I mean, I don't think they were all giants, were they? I mean, but that, but, that was the land of Canaan, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any, do you think there's any chance that, um, that there could be cultural memory of, um, that would survive? Like how many, how many, Neanderthal and how many, like Denisovians? tens of thousands of years, cultural memory? that could survive long enough to recollect interaction with Neanderthals? It's an excellent question, but we find that legacy in our art. The use of red ochre can be tied back to the uh, Neanderthals. And one of the hypotheses is who were the Denisovans? Were they some remnant of this giant race? We don't know because that's different within my DNA than everyone else here. So what was that? I do know that there are some anthropological markers that make indigenous peoples different, one of which is our teeth. And that's why it was so important about what mm. was found in those caves in, in Siberia. 
but uh, we have different types of teeth. The main thing is we have shovel-shaped incisors, which is the only uh, dominant genetic trait. But on the backside of front teeth are scooped. Hmm. Um, we have the um, Mongol Mongolian spot that comes out of Asia, and I, I brought all my DNA stuff. What it's does just that mean? The Mongolian spot. It's a little blue spot on the behind of babies and sometimes on the back or the stomach. And it's just a, a genetic marker. We don't know. And it fades. And it fades. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. But hmm. we do have different DNA. We have different uh, mitochondrial DNA as well. So the stuff that I, when I originally got into the DNA stuff, uh, when I was doing all my, all my research for the book, was really trying to understand, are we different? And National Geographic, who seems to be a central player in all this, have done an incredible job of trying to understand some of this ancient past. And from the DNA perspective, they started this project called uh, Genomic, which was trying to isolate the fact that we have different haplogroups for our mitochondrial DNA. So I have some of those markers that would be the dominant European ones, but then we have this mitochondrial DNA that's very, very different from others. When you did – so when you did a DNA test – or what, do you, what, what are the services have you done? I did the um, genomic project and then more recently, I think I did the ancestry one. Okay. So the genomic project was, you were actually involved in a research project. Yeah. I mean, my, my DNA was a part of that study. That's why I signed up for it. I see. So what can you, what did it tell you about you? Uh, one that I had similar part of Neanderthal, which is probably my Irish heritage, maybe some of the <laughs> French or German I have in there as well. Um, but it also shows that I've got, you see, I've got 2.3% of Neanderthal and 1.7% Denisovan, but probably most evidence through teeth and other, other is structures. Is that common amongst Native Americans? And Do not all. Steve is jealous. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what are the percentages again? <laughs> 2.3. You, you think that you have more Neanderthal. No, I remember being a little light. They, they, 23 <laughs> me told me I was a little light on Neanderthal, man. <laughs> you know. But it goes back to, you know. Lighter uh, than average. <laughs> I mean, these, uh, I guess it's natural within human beings to feel like one type of hominid is you know superior to the others. But I think it goes back to that core value that we have as indigenous peoples that we're all related. So whether it's. Homo sapien, Homo sapien, or Neanderthal, or Denisovan, all part of humanity as we now know it. But when you, okay, has there, is there enough information out there that you can get into, like, my understanding when they do these projects is it kind of depends on how, how many samples are taken. Sure. So there's some spots on the planet that there just hasn't been enough people, they haven't done their genomes, haven't done their genetics, and so... Some spots are hazy. Some spots like wet, like Western Europe, um, a lot of participants, a lot of people have done it. You start getting these really detailed pictures, but you talk to people who um, whose ancestors came from Asia, and it's like not as satisfying when you when you do it there because it's not filled in in a detailed sense. And you'd be told like, "Ah, oh, you're kind of generally Asian." Um, when you, what, what, with yours, are they able? Like, where is that at now? Are they able to talk about regions? within what's now the United States? I don't think it's going to ever be able to get that granular because no. tribe is a fluid thing, you know? But I was really surprised. I mean, I, I know that I'm majority Native American, but 
the, the formal test, uh, both of them came out around the same percentage, 46%. Um, but what I was surprised at was based off one of the tests that there was a lot more Peruvian bloodlines. Oh. And um, in both tests was a um, consistent percentage of descendancy from the Ainu of Japan, the indigenous peoples of really? uh, Japan. Wow. Mm. Ch- Chinese for sure. Peruvian. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one that was a big curveball was uh, the nearly quarter percent that said I was Russian. Huh. And that I was related to Tolstoy. Can, can you track back? <laughs> can you track back in your history? That's got to be encouraging as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> like, so that's where I got that talent. <laughs> can you but, track back in your history where some of this stuff comes from? I mean, like, could you say, like, my great-grandfather was, like, a Caucasian guy? I mean, I, I, I finally found people who know more a lot more but like your mother and father were members of the tribe, the Omaha yeah. tribe. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I can go back, you know, 14, 17 generations on almost yeah. both sides. But you're, and, and there's nothing along those lines. But what it, when I finally did talk to somebody who knew what they were talking about a lot more than I did, was probably had to do with this mixing of Siberian and Eurasian bloodlines. And it went back and forth for a time before they came over to Siberian. Arguably, some of them maybe even came back. And oh, so you don't think that was that was anything recent, like in the last couple no. hundred years? Oh no, yeah, that yeah, no. that, that was, was all like pre-context stuff. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Can I make a correction real quick? I, I said Anak in Genesis. It was Nephilim. Nephilim were the giants. Nephilim. Yeah, yeah. Irrelevant, but I just had to clear that up. That Nephilim. Cool. And I've been fascinated with all of, you know the understanding of what happened in Mesoamerica, what happened in, in, in South America. Been uh, really enjoy reading about uh, those British explorers who finally went down to South America and, and tried to find the lost city of Zed, mm-hmm. Colonel Fawcett. It's a fascinating story. But um, on behalf of the Royal Geographic Society, he went down in the early 1900s and began to explore. And his hypothesis was... There was the lost city of Zed, which was uh, a complex society in South America. Um, Charles Mann, in his book, 1493, he talks a lot about um, terra preta and some of the agricultural practices involving the use of biochar and how to take very alkaline soils and turn them into, you know, productive things. And these are ancient. Mm -hmm. But um, much, many years after Fawcett's disappearance into the Amazon. Uh, no one knows ever what happened to him, but many people tried to go and find out through the use of technology. We've, we're finding all these ancient cities now and uh, more and more evidence that the population numbers were a lot bigger. But uh, that's the first point in having any of these conversations about ancient America is how many people, how many bison, et cetera, all those become really interesting topics about what happened to them, why did they leave or disappear, what was the role of disease and genocide, how much of it was purposeful. I think all those things are important for people to understand so that at the very least we don't repeat those bad portions of, of, of history. Tribal peoples have a, a prophecy. It's primarily in the plains, but it's all around. It has to do with the seventh generation prophecy. And ultimately, you can look to sad symbolic events in history, such as the original Battle of Wounded Knee, 
which was um, putting down of uh, a very powerful um, the uh, ghost dance religion and um, and its prophet Walvoka um, up around up around Pine Ridge there and uh, I believe it was in the 1870s but it was uh, such a horrific event that many viewed it as the breaking of the great sacred hoop of the Suian peoples. And at that point, it was said that uh, that was the beginning of a very tough time for indigenous peoples, that for six generations we would suffer greatly, and Lord knows we've suffered. And that with the markings, then, um, I think you wrote about this some too, stories about white buffalo calf woman, that, mm-hmm. she, that she would return. And so we had um, those markings in, in actuality in the physical manif- manifestation of white buffalo calves. So we had the first one in 2001, and by 2007, there were four of them. And that means that that was the time for the return of the seventh generation. I had actually been writing a scholarly paper with uh, a legal scholar who also happened to be a Dakota spiritualist, and she's the one who explained it to me at the time. But uh, with the coming of the fourth white buffalo calf, then uh, all of the children born after that would be of the seventh generation. So for those tribal peoples, that generation would be the ones that would lead them to those nations to stand tall again and be and be, be proud. Um, for all those children that are non-indigenous that were born after that time frame, they're the also part of the seventh generation. And as non-indigenous, they're going to be the population that's finally ready for our knowledge. And uh, it was uh, pointed out to me that I was a part of the sixth generation, that I was supposed to be a teacher, and that I didn't know all my stories. And she was right. So that began that that journey for me from going from a general person in corporate America, trying to find out who am I and where do I come from, so that when it comes time, I can tell these stories. Mm Mm-hmm in the hopes that it's going to make the world a better place. Can you I- explain to people the uh, the ghost dancers? Because there, there was two, there was kind of like two occurrences where someone tried to unite. Um, what was the one like related to the, you know, he was he was from Indiana, right? Tecumseh, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's two, two, two separate stories. Yeah, but, he, mm-hmm. he, well, like a, a, a person, a, a sort of prophet, Yes. That wanted to unite people. Yes. That would try to like patch up and, and form an allegiance of, of confederacy people. Yes. Yeah. Confederacy to, to fight. And then the ghost dance prophet or teacher, or whatever. Was prophet. He mm-hmm. was similar too. He was trying to he was he was trying to communicate with a like a, with a bunch of historical enemies. To bring to bind them together, it was a derivation out of the Potawatomi um, Dreaming Dance Society, and um, ultimately he had these visions where um, the followers could, through dance and song, could put themselves into a mental state where they could see the other side. And it was their hope that um, despite what had happened uh, with the loss of the bison and our and our traditional life ways, that the old world would come back. And that's what they were 
they were seeking. Of course, it was seen by the United States military as insurrection, and, mm -hmm. they, were, and they were summarily attacked and killed up at Wounded Knee, and the prophet was killed at that point. What was the sec like? When did the second Wounded Knee massacre? That was the 1890s, right? No, that was in, in the 1970s. That had to do with the Red Power Movement and the American Indian Movement. Oh no no okay I, I must I know I thought that there was like two wounded knee things in close proximity. Not that I'm aware oh, of. Okay. The first one was pretty brutal, and uh, tribes didn't respond back from that till many many years later. And then wounded knee became a became a focal point in the 70s. Yes, of the American Indian movement. Yes, that's after they became militant for sure. Yeah. Back what other questions? Bigfoot. Not Bigfoot. what other questions? Oh, yeah. No, no. We covered off Bigfoot. on that. Bigfoot. No, we didn't. You hadn't heard him talk about Bigfoot yet. I don't think he's a Bigfoot enthusiast. I am a Bigfoot No, no. He, he, he has something to say. Oh. And I'll tell you I why, know. Steve, because Bigfoot is not an American icon. It's a tribal icon. All the tribes we have, Bigfoot, the uh, Omaha's, um, Heenska Bay, it means the hairy race of people. Really? All the tribes, um, many of the tribes, especially up in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, it's, it is a spiritual part of their formation. Um, they, some of the clans up there are even responsible for protecting the anonymity and the sacredness of them. But it's become something out of American popular lore, but... But that's where that See, comes that's from. What, that's what he said I'm that helped correct me because when we were walking up here, he said, what do you think about Bigfoot? <laughs> and, uh, and he told me, he said, Bigfoot is not, doesn't belong to America. I mean, you know, America as in like white European culture that dominates America. He said it's, it belongs to the tribes. And, and then he, I don't want to take your, I don't want to tell what you're going to say about that he's a spirit being, but I just did. Many of our, of our stories <laughs> say that there's a relationship between them and the sky people. Mm -hmm. And so um, perhaps they can move between different planes of existence. I mean, who are we to say what is real and what's not, what's happening in the spirit world and what's happening here? Many say that they move in between those, those, those realms. That's been adopted. That attribute has been also adopted by... Bigfoot's researchers to explain why you cannot catch them on a trail camera because they they uh, they like move out of they move into the ethereal realm and can't be photographed. Do you believe Steve? No, Mitch Hedberg, the comedian Mitch Hedberg, thinks they're just blurry, and it's not the <laughs> photographer's fault. You think it's a bear on two legs? <laughs> See what I what, what I, I I don't I, I don't know. No, to me, what, what he told me gave me. Uh, I mean, it just gave me another perspective. Sure, that that explains this. And I knew that that Bigfoot would have been connected to indigenous Americans, but I guess I didn't know realize that it was something sacred, and that it, it was is. something that's really valued. You know, that's kind of been, you know hijacked in a way. I mean, because have, I, I, I told him, I said, no, I don't believe in big, well, this is before I heard his story. I said, no, I don't believe in Bigfoot. I think people are seeing bipedal bears that have had wounded front feet and are walking on their back legs. 
Which um, we know for a fact happens. That happens, for sure happens. But uh, no, I, it just expanded this idea because, I mean, the 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 Bigfoot or the, the hairy, hominid-like, bipedal lore goes so deep. I mean, it's bizarre how deep it goes. I mean, I, I, we were talking about the Koyukon. The Koyukon have a very distinct Bigfoot-like character that is up in Alaska. Every that, tribe does. Yeah. And well, they're all complex and deep and rich. So I know in Southeast Alaska, some of the groups have a, uh, there's an otter man, which Haida and Simshian people have mentioned to me. Hmm. The Koyukon have the woodsman. They call them woodsmen. Kind of a wilding, right? Yeah, and it, it's not exactly a Bigfoot, but that's kind of how they treated it. And they, and they said they were supernatural. They could move in and out of, you know, being able to be seen and whatnot, but they were almost like a feral human that was real hairy. And then, of course, you have the counterpart to the giants. We all have stories of little people as well. And um, they're a very powerful race, and they move in and out of this existence. The story that I always like to tell about it, um, I'm, a, I'm a descendant of um, Baptiste Dorian. That's the French part of my Omaha bloodlines, and he was an interpreter for Lewis and Clark. And uh, whenever Lewis and Clark um, met with the Iowa and the Oto at uh, what is now Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is where I live, uh, the Omahas were not present because they were on bison hunt. But eventually some of the translators and uh, explorers went along and my ancestor was a part of it. And they got up near Vermilion, South Dakota. And uh, Lewis and Clark wanted to dispatch all of the all of the tribal representatives to go and to explore um, this um, basically a rock mound at Spirit Lake. And the Omahas dug in their hills and said, uh-uh, we ain't going. And they asked them why. And they said, because we have a story. Uh, there were a number of our warriors, there were 300 of them that were on a um, horse raiding trip. Uh, which was not honorable. And uh, on their return going past uh, the rock edifice there at Spirit Lake, that the little people came out and attacked them and killed over half of them. Hmm. And so our stories about giants and little people, all the tribes have stories like that. I only know the ones that I've been told. Hmm. But uh, they go so far back into our history that there has to be something to them. But I mean, there's, there's, there's parallels with the Gaelic cultures and little people, et cetera. Uh, the mound builders, you find very strong similarities between the uh, Carnes and rock mounds of Northern Europe and what you see in the Mississippian plain as well. So for me, it's just a lot of questions back to that whole tenet of we're all related, but how did all these things rise around the same time and, and then, and then collapse? You know, I think when I when I hear you talk, just kind of a broad general statement about hearing you talk is that we so bad want to be able to explain everything that we know. And in science, science is by very essence only able to discern so and much. understand what is physically observable. I mean, that's the definition of science. Like science does not delve into 
you know, things that are metaphysical. And and what I like about hearing some of these like ancient deep time stories of indigenous people is that we really like to think that we know everything and we just don't. I mean, I, I did an interview with one of the top wildlife biologists in the country that deals with with uh, white oak trees and acorns. And he, when I started drilling down questions about white oak trees, like he was like, Clay, you don't have to dig very far to realize science does not know all the answers, even about something so simple and not that seemingly important. And just as I hear you talk about even qualms about how long humans have been in North America and, you know, our, our, the archaeology we know, you know, says X, you know, we've been here this long, but, and, and that's just the best that we've got. But your stories say that it goes way back further than that. And, uh, and I, I just feel like we really don't know. And it's okay for us to say we don't know. And it's okay for us to say that the measurements of science do have limitations. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Just back to the field of anthropology and its separation from folklore because that was the scientific part of anthropology which says we have to have physical evidence for everything and it ignored folklore and it was only until the last 10 years or so that was one of the works that really inspired me to start my book was reading uh, Tim uh, Pocktat's work on on Cahokia and he was the first mainstream anthropologist to bust out of the mold and say hey we need to we need to look at, at tribal stories here to help figure out and that's that's how we come up with the stories of and science has been really good at ostracizing people that have spoken against it you can look back a thousand years and find that right so yeah stories are everything still let me ask you about something we've had this debate on and off over the years and i'd just like to get your perspective on it many of the earth mounds have been ransacked okay like you have a term like pot hunters right so people that would just go dig up caves dig up um, it starts with arrowheads. Yeah. Well, that's where I'm going. So people would dig up caves. People would dig up effigy mounds. People would dig up cities, haul off the stuff that they thought was of value and, and, and destroy it from an archaeological perspective and then desecrate it from a religious perspective, say. Uh, let's put that at an extreme. Okay. At the other end is you're out tilling a field and up pops a broken arrowhead. Sure. Okay. And you put that arrowhead in your pocket because you're thinking, I'm going to till this field all the time. I just kicked it up. My field. Yeah. So two questions for you. Um, what's your take on that, on that impulse? Well, the- And then I want you to judge that impulse. <laughs> well- Two different kinds of people in the world, right? There's people who want to lump everybody into two groups. <laughs> <laughs> airhead pickers and airhead leavers. Right, yeah. right. Uh, the, Speaking the, of. The, the analogy that I thought was interesting at this, at this point was um, if we all walked up and found a wallet and there was money in it, half of us are going to take it and give it to someone to give it back, right? Mm-hmm. The other half's going to take take the money, pocket it, and... Toe the wallet. Yeah, that's probably about right. So I think I think the same <laughs> the, the thing. Percentages, right? <laughs> but it it goes to how we think about objects that we don't understand. Uh-huh. Arrowheads would, would would be one of those. On the the one end of the extreme is you know uh, people love to, to collect arrowheads. Um, 
My dad did. I've got his collection in, at home. I, Your father did? Yeah, my dad did. And uh, he loved it. And he Like he actively his, hunted arrowheads. He did, and he yeah. gave, them, gave them to me. And so I understand that. At the same time, I know that what is in that act? Why is that so important philosophically when your average American is walking somewhere and sees this arrowhead? What is it that compels them to want to pick it up and to take it for their own? Some may admire the beauty and the history as it is and was and says, that's pretty powerful. And maybe if we leave it in the ground, maybe this was an important place. Maybe that arrowhead told a story of how these people lived. Maybe it explains the time period of when that was made. Maybe it's tied to an animal that was ancient that this arrowhead went into. There's so much that could be there. Uh And then there's the other perspective is my land, I found it, it's mine. And perhaps I- Or that something will happen to it. Okay. Been there a long time by itself. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you can't discount the rarity of it. And that's what- I think compels a lot of people to not leave it because it's, I don't know, it'd be, it, I mean. Do they a, want its magic for themselves? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was with some, I was with some anthropologists who were doing work in the NPRA, so the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska. What they were doing is ahead of oil exploration, which is probably inevitable. They were trying to make a map of cultural sites. Um, because when they do, you know, ESA process and all the other processes to go into extract oil, there needs to be an accounting of what might be destroyed. Sure. And it would, and the finding of cultural sites would impact where you would build roads, put in wellheads, whatnot. Um, you're in a place that you can't even, it's so far out, you can't get a helicopter there on a tank of gas. You got to like take a plane and kick out barrels of gas. And then hopscotch from barrel to barrel in a helicopter. That's how like remote you are. But anyways, there's just stuff laying out, man. It's been sitting there thousands of years. Like there's no one around to pick it up. Hasn't been. And I'm telling you, those guys would photograph the projectile points and they would draw the projectile points and they would stick them back in the moss. It was painful for me. Painful. I would have visions of coming back out and getting them. I wanted them so bad. Why? I don't know, man. It's just like, because they're so cool. I'd be like, oh, like every part of me. I mean, I would go and revisit. Like, I, I remember one time at camp, leaving camp, walking down, not to take it, but leaving camp, walking down, getting it back out of the moss, looking at it for a long time, sticking it back in the moss, and just like, yeah. It'd be like if, I don't know, man, like if you put a, box of nerds out on the ground and my kids found it they'd be like man i'll tell you what i'm gonna do with those nerds <laughs> well there's very there's very few i can't things, explain it although there are a lot of things in the natural world that do connect us to you know way back history there's very few things that are that physical that you can just look at and hold and it takes you like well, way back it's not it connects you to this, something. Is, Let me put it this, this way. is such a new go ahead i i, 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 I want to say this one thing it, it's a lot of things. I don't understand it. I can tell you what it's not. It's not meant as an act of disrespect for the person that owned that thing. For some, and I want to get Quite the that. opposite. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a thing of like uh, deep reverence 
curiosity about, fascination with the person that made that thing. Sure. But if one takes that, you lose the context of where it was and whatever science might be able to tell us about it. I wanted yeah, to bring up, that's a good point. I wanted to bring up two serious things on this topic. So that's on one end of the, of the extreme. And then you have in the wake of the passing of the legislation to protect um, tribal remains and funerary objects known as the Native American Engraves Repatriation Act. In the 1990s, then prior to that, you have the Archaeological Resource Protection Act. And you have aberrations of this benign mindset about things like arrowheads. And on this other extreme, you have this event that happened with the uh, National Park Service at Effigy Mounds in Iowa. And as the rise of NAGPRA and... um, State of Iowa also passed an early law saying that, you know, if if there are skeletal remains or funerary objects and ultimately what became the language of Native American Graves and Repatriation Act is anything that is sacred needs to be returned back to the people. Mm-hmm. And what happened there was they had a number of skeletal remains and the superintendent of the site I believe his name was Tom Munson. He was so frustrated with the potential that these objects would be out of their collection. And um, I believe it was a combination of 24 different human remains from different individuals. That were on display. That were on display at different points. And as this, the potential risk of this law taking them away from the anthropological archaeological collection, he stole them and tucked them to his house and then lied about it for years. Hmm. And ultimately, there had to be an accounting of it. But we're talking about skeletal remains. What do you think was going on in his head? Um, I have to take this so we don't have to give them back to the Indians and eventually everyone's going to forget and then we can have them back. So you have this unhealthy relationship between objects that have a tribal provenance and what we would like to see happen to them, any skeletal remains. Uh, there's an exception in the Americas because of archaeology and anthropology that science came in and says, it's okay to take Indian bones. There's been numerous examples of cemeteries in, that were damaged during construction, et cetera. They find the white people bones and they bury them properly, and the Indian bones go to the state archaeological societies. Ultimately, it took uh, enforcement of NAGPRA to come in and to uh, convict him for keeping and stealing all those all those remains. The tribes were um, very upset about that, and there was no accountability of it. Even further and, and more political goes to uh, archaeological rich sites like um, down in uh, – outside of Blanding – Utah, and there was a raid that uh, there was 24 individuals that were ultimately indicted, and in in between them, they had 40,000 objects that they had illegally taken out of the ground, some of which had provenance to 6,000 B.C., Hmm. pottery shards, human remains, 
funerary sandals, etc. And um, foremost of those was a doctor by the name of James Red, and uh, it was certainly viewed as an overzealous overreach of uh, the FBI and the Bureau of Land Management. But um, the facts of the case are still the same. There was over 40,000 objects that were gotten in that sting. The economics of it is what is mind-boggling to me because this is the serious part about arrowheads, et cetera, was of the 240 objects that they found there, they used an informant um, to try to lure these individuals who were illegally trading them and fueling the black market in Native American objects. Um, uh, there was, I think they spent around 330000 which averaged around $1,340 per object for those 250 So if we use that as a proxy and run the numbers, then that collection, which they hauled away from those 24 individuals, a uh, collection of 40000 would be over $53 million. So this is one subset of what happens with the black market trade around Native American objects, which have been fetishized beyond the object and their provenance into a horrible black market. So why would the individual who finds the arrowhead or the pottery shard, I can get 100 bucks for this, and then it goes on and on and on. Dr. Red and the informant sadly uh, committed suicide rather than face the charges. But one of the anecdotes. The informant killed himself. He did. A year a year later. Huh. And if you look up stories on this, you're going to find more stories about the overreach of the federal government. But it uh, certainly doesn't take away from the fact that this was an illustration of the huge black market around Native American objects, especially things that are sacred, human remains, funerary objects, things that should be sacred and left alone. So th there's a serious side to oh, hunting, I, I, hunting objects. Oh, I get the serious side for sure. And I think that you, if you went and talked to people, um, just like polled people who are hobbyists, you know, about... They don't think they're doing anything wrong. Well, you, I think you'd find, if you said like, hey, if you found... Uh, human skeleton what would you do i think you know the vast majority of people would would recognize it they, they they wouldn't take it or they would tell someone or whatever you know but i think people sort of spread it out and they view that uh, arrowhead isn't of significance or it was it wasn't purposefully placed it was perhaps lost it was that, broken that's where i want it was disc it was discarded and it wasn't like someone putting something somewhere the same way we might look at our own like we might look at a, a cemetery. Um, like I might look at a cemetery that my ancestors were buried in and have a very different feeling about it than I would if I found uh, like an old rusty pistol laying out in the woods. Uh, I'd be like, yeah, I could dig up the graveyard, but I just found an old rusty pistol out in the woods. I'm going to take it home with me. You know, like, like we, we sort of hold these two, like we distinguish these things, or we, we, we separate these things out in our head. Um, I can't tell you where the line falls for everybody, but I think a lot of people view there being some line somewhere. If it's yeah. a bone, bone of a human, leave it alone. Yeah. Tell somebody. Well, I think I think I really want some clarity from you, just your personal opinion. Like, so obviously there are some legal ramifications. I mean, there, there's legal boundaries that guide us 
like obviously we can't mess with human bones. You can't take any kind of artifacts off public land. So let's go to private land. Um, if if I'm on my land and see an airhead, should should I pick that up? Should Clay Newcomb pick it up? Well, if you found a wallet with five hundred bucks, would you pick it up or give it back? I would I would pick it up and give it back. But but I don't. I just I'm 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 just being totally honest with you. I'm struggling to find the 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 complete apples to apples connection there, and because um, I mean, what am I supposed to do if I find an airhead on my land? Am I supposed to call the you know the the Osage or the Choctaws that would have been there? And I'm, I'm, I'm it would just, be interesting for you to do that though, <laughs> <laughs> for you as a landowner, and then and that's yeah. one of the serious parts that I'm hoping comes out of. Yeah, talk, that's a good point. Talks with people like me is is that. There's so much more to the provenance of this land. You've said that word. Can you tell me what that word means? Well, yeah, the, that it's, provenance. Yeah, I mean that there's a history. Okay. Um, yeah, it's like the, in, in artwork or in wine or whatever. It's it's the ownership history. Ownership history. Got it. Like you know, like some painting comes up. You know, the provenance. People are very interested okay. in, in its flow through time. So I'm so impressed, Steve. It, so. You nailed that one, according to Merriam-Webster. Number one, because <laughs> I had to Merriam-Webster it while we've been talking because he's used it so many times. And the 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 first definition is just straight origin or source, but then number two is the well, history of ownership of a valued object or work of art or literature. The That's reason right. it's real important in paintings and antiquities is the the more solid the provenance is, the less worried you are that, it's a that it that it came that it emerged out of somewhere as a phony. Yeah. Like all you know is like I don't know, it just came out of appeared out of nowhere in nineteen twenty. No one knows the no hell. provenance. And I'll got say, it, I don't got know, it. some guy made well, a you know. I okay, let me ask you this. Like, so I'm from western Arkansas close to where you're from originally. And w- there's a lot of airheads, uh, you know, atlatl points, spear points, a lot of stone points everywhere. I mean, I- I'm convinced that they are distributed across the landscape. Everywhere. Everywhere. And so think about this, or, or this is just a thought pattern that I would have. Like, we have destroyed so much of the Earth's surface through civilization, covered it with concrete, moved it crops crops like we've we so and and i i'm okay driving on a road that has destroyed native american airheads um but in my mule pasture where my mules tear up the ground and they have trails of dirt that have exposed the ground i find some stone points and that's why i would ask you in just a totally heartfelt question is like when I when I pick up a stone point that came out, came off my place, which I have I have I have seen many. I call my kids, and usually I'll call them out before I pick it up if they're home, and say, "Look at that." I'll say, "The last human to touch that was planning to cook his dinner over a fire with an animal that he killed with that point." I mean, we it's a moment, man. I mean, it's not just like, "Oh, look at this." It, does that count for for some value? Like, what should I do with those? Well, I mean, perhaps. What would you do with them? That's a good question. The, the example that I would point to was Steve's example of of finding a bison skull. You go on a journey, mm-hmm. and you find out the two the true provenance of that animal and its histories. And I reported it. And you reported it. 
Yeah. But it's in my house. Yeah. After learning all that I've learned, I would want to leave it there. Mm. And at a certain point, would want to introduce science into it to see what we could understand about what that piece was like, what period was it from, what were they hunting, who was doing the hunting, just a lot of questions. And hopefully layering into the history as we know it from the object that's looking at it on the ground, coupled with science and then a layer of indigenous history or provenance onto it can only add to the value of the history of the object. And that's my whole point with all of this is that wherever you look across America, there's all these objects, there's all this history. It's there for all of us to understand and to help enhance our own experience as Americans. Speaking of history, now that we haven't been speaking about anything besides history, can you explain to everybody um, about the Sacred Seeds Project? Absolutely. When I began to write the book, uh, it became pretty apparent after doing a lot of research that the rise of the Mississippian mound builder culture had a lot to do with the food that they were eating. And um, around this, the same time frame, actually a little, a little bit earlier, um, one of my mentors in life, Dr. Deward Walker, he's the chair emeritus of anthropology at CU Boulder. He began to watch some of the trends that was happening with some of the big uh, seed companies like Monsanto, Syngenta, and what they were doing in other countries like the country of India. And uh, ultimately... You mean like trademarking seeds and... Yes, yeah. intellectual property protection, but was also displacing them of their indigenous seeds and getting them their own contract-bound genetically modified organism seeds, and which is basically what the American farmer does. Um, those seeds, the corn that we see in fields is clones, and it's uh, uh, one small variation of corn compared to the thousands of types of corn that were here before. And so I began to you know, study the Mississippian record and basically where there was corn in abundance, there were people in abundance. And where there was corn, there were people and there was life. And so from a cosmological perspective, that was the gift of old woman who gave us seeds and she gave us corn and all the tribes have different stories, but it's so integral to our life ways and cosmology and survival that you can't get around it. And so I began my own journey of trying to find some of these ancient seeds and what it meant. Um, we were talking about, about this before the podcast, Yanni, about what happens when 95% of your ancestors are gone at some point. Did it all happen at once? No, it was very devastating. The examples in Nebraska was uh, because of our proximity to the middle of the country, the tribes there, we weren't hit until the late 1700s and early 1800s. Uh, there was a wave in late 1700, eight, 1830, 1860, and perhaps more waves. But the cumulative effect was 95% decimation rates. So it just may have happened in 1500 in one place and 1800s in the other. But the net effect was not loss of knowledge for mm -hmm. sure. And so whatever we can do to find our way back to that, what I found was <clears throat> starting with basically 30 seeds from the Cherokee Nation Seed Saving Project and planting those in the ground, there was something about 
understanding that history, understanding how we planted, when we planted, why, what shape, what seeds, how did you plant them, and began to piece together this companion planting agricultural lifeways that was at the cent center of how people survived on this continent for at least a thousand years ago and probably much beyond that. And by putting my hands in the soil, by understanding the rhythms, talking with elders, piecing together these things back, I began to find all these little tidbits. Um, we're supposed to plant on the new moon in May. There's a flower that grows. The first one that, that flowers, that's when you plant other parts of the crop. Uh, when we left them, uh, they were drought-resistant seeds. And all of these things began to impact how I felt. And I truly felt by doing these acts, by having a good heart, by doing them for the right reasons, uh, not for money, back to the whole notion of Robin's work around sacred economies and sacred reciprocity, that it began to change me in a way. I'm very familiar with intergenerational trauma and the impact of what colonization has had on indigenous peoples, and it's, it's rough. It's really hard. But on the converse side, perhaps it has to do with epigenetics, but by getting my hands in the soil, by growing these plants, by learning from them, that it's healing me and that it can heal others. And we have a notion of blood memory that somehow the ancestors through our DNA will help us understand how to put this all back together. How can we live better again? Um, I look at the landscape and I see things differently after doing all this work, after studying to be a teacher of the sixth generation. I look across this landscape and I see the land, the land that once was, I see the land that could be again. I see bison herds, massive, where everyone could hunt them again. The food that they eat is back again. The switchgrass, the bison grass, the buffalo commons, um, reintroduction of all these things that we're beginning to see again. Things that were important to tribal peoples that are part of our clan systems. The role of wolf and elk and bison and how these, this is what the land here was meant to produce to sustain people. But I look and see every tillable acre planted. I see invasive species of cows everywhere. When those resources are scant, who wins? Who has priority? The private landholder and the cow? the elk, the natural order of things. These are the things that I ponder. But ultimately that's what Sacred Seed is about, is ex exploring those journeys, going backwards in time, but also in the age of monocrop cultures, potential failures of those. Hopefully someday people are gonna be glad that people like me find all these diverse seeds, all these different types of corn, um, that we have this multiplicity of seeds so that someday we're going to be glad that we have it. And not to mention just the rich, richness and the beauty that comes from all these different types of seeds. Do you have somewhere a, a facility or, you know, how, how are you storing these things and sort of 
codifying, you know, whatever knowledge is there. I brought some in. This is, um, huh. there's corn, bean, and squash in here. Oh, there is? Yep. And this is um, an ancient variety, actually, in, in, in my studies to find all this stuff, ultimately, I, we found these older collections. And one of the things that I was so curious to find was an Omaha rainbow flint, which I couldn't find anywhere. And ultimately, in the collections of Carl Barnes, he was a Cherokee individual who, over the course of his 85 years here, he collected over 1,500 different types of seeds across all the Americas. And some of them are still viable. Well, you're looking at some right here. Hmm. So, yeah, he has a, I mean, it's like a jet black, I don't know, like that's a, a deep purplish jet that's a black. red. Yep. Red. Yep, and those seeds. Corn, it's about like the size of like what we what you sort of consider to be a real big carrot. Uh, they can about be a lot bigger than that. That was one of the smaller ears. That's the only one that wasn't shelled, but that is a ruby flint. Wow. Oh, blood red. Just blood, blood red. What does it mm. taste like? Uh, probably the difference between commercial white rice and wild rice that you'd find up around the Great Lakes. just has a much deeper, richy, earthy taste to that. Now, they Not wouldn't have sweet, used right? this. Uh, th you know, sweet is one variety. Um, there's flour, there's flint, mm. uh, there's popping corn, and there's sweet corn. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've never had much luck with growing the sweet varieties because it's sugar and all things in nature like sugar. So bugs, raccoons, hmm. they love it. Deer. So well, you, you, these, those these seeds purple, would have Steve. been... Uh, you don't think they would have been hybridized with modern varieties? I mean, as much as we can tell. I mean, they were all turned into hybrids to, you know, grow well locally, which is basically what I'm attempting to do too. So the the version that I originally had was a, a rainbow flint, and some of these seeds are more sacred to others. So we were talking earlier about clan taboos, et cetera. So amongst my mother's tribe, the Omaha, um, my clan is responsible for keeping the uh, sacred red corn. Mm. And uh, now I'm glad to say that we have our own varieties of our sacred red back. One of the clan taboos is that uh, uh, who is better to keep the red corn than those that can't even touch it, which is why it was in the bag and why I didn't touch it, because my clan is not allowed to touch that. It's one of the clan taboos. Mm. What do you do with it? I'm the protector of it. I mean, so you wouldn't eat that. I can't touch it. I can't eat it. So your clan would have grown it, and then what would they have done with it? Shared it with the rest of the tribe, and every clan. Oh, has so your their clan own is inside of your tribe. That's yep. uh, that. Okay. Yeah. So it's a bigger tribe, but your particular clan had this job. Yep. Understood. And so that's. I like that idea that who better to keep it than the one that can't touch it? Right. Wow. Yeah. That's, a lot of people have trouble with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good, man. Give it to him. He can't eat it. Right? It'll be there when you come looking it, for it. It will be. <laughs> so what would they have used this corn for? Would they have ground it up? Could Probably. You, could you boil that and eat it like corn on the cob, like sweet you corn? You could, but that's not the best way to make it healthy. Um, historically, it's one of the things that we found from the anthropological record was that in its raw form or ground, uh, flints have a, a a thicker... I'd like to see that, Steve. Sure. You can pass it around, and there's also beans there that are... Uh, from the Cherokee side, the Trail of Tear beans what literally sustained us, and those are indigenous squash seeds there. So huh. the three grown together is very important. Mm -hmm. 
Corn takes a lot of nitrogen out of the soil. Beans put it back. Um, squash keeps a lot of things out of their deer, raccoon. Raccoons love corn. And so when you plant them all together, um, you have a whole different uh, perspective of, of growing that is more sustainable, so to speak. Um, because when you look at the differences between Euro-American ag methodologies, one is put them in rows and then switch out the fields, whereas ours uh, were rarely moved um, except for like a 10-year time period. Mm. So a little more sustainable from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But it's just been my journey with these seeds to, to educate, going back to Robin's work on braiding sweetgrass. She had a dream um, after visiting, uh, I believe it was a trading market in, in South America. And uh, in her dream, she went and money was no good, only the sacred currency of other things that you could trade. And uh, my students caught, caught that for sure. And when I began Sacred Seed, we looked at being a seed bank for money, taking on USDA grants, millions of dollars, and they finally said, no, let's just leave it as it is. And that's how it got the name. Mm -hmm. So rather than trying to exploit uh, the plant nation for corn here, um, I just utilize it to, to share and to educate and to show people the, the beauty because this is not what we think of the corn. This that's whole gorgeous. plant is red, purple. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, even the, that's the, why the cob wow. is. That's why I brought this in broken because you can see the cob is yeah. red. And so by, the stalk is red? The stalk starts green and then turns a deep purple red. Wow. Really? And usually we'll make it about three quarters away before the, the seeds are ready. So is there like this seed with the organization, would there be a way for, I mean, are you distributing seed in any way to to tribes or to I other do. people? I do. Um, when we first started, it was really a matter of, you know, I had just a handful of different type of seeds and I've got so many different stories of how seeds came to us. Uh, there was one fun story. There was a guy that was a uh, descendant of the original homesteader. I want to say it was fifth great grandfather. I don't know what it was, but he was a nice man. And he had been digging on his land and found an old corn grist stone. And he did the right thing. And he contacted, did his research and found out the tribe that it came from it was the Pawnees. And um, he contacted them and... Uh, they told him, it sounds like one of ours. Why don't you come on down and we'll talk about it? So he did. Mind you, that's a trip from western Nebraska down to Oklahoma. Mm. And when they got there, their um, tribal historic preservation officer pulled out one similar and says, yep, that looks like one of ours. And uh, in a true sacred reciprocity trading agreement, they said, you know what, we're going to we're going to take this, but we're going to give you these uh, bean seeds here. And uh, I can't, I can never remember if it's spotted like a horse or painted like a horse beans, but they're absolutely gorgeous. And uh, it's a bush bean, and it's what the Pawnees used. And uh, I love it. I, I knew the story is for real when he told me all these things. One, they made him go down there. You know, there's no put it in a mail package and let's talk about it later. They're like, bring it down on this talk. And once they got there, once they gave him the seeds, they said, 
No white man's ever had these before. Oh, really? <laughs> are, they, are they in the collection now? Well, he, he was afraid to plant them. So when he heard one of my podcasts or stories, he contacted me and says, I'm, I'm afraid to screw this up. And of mm. course, he's, uh, I said, well, why don't you put them in the mail? And he said, no, why don't you come get them? <laughs> oh, really? So I had to go get them. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. great, man. So there's all sorts of stories with this project. I just, wow. This has been really beautiful. It's an educational content to huh. explain to people and ultimately, you know, keep finding all these different hybrids that ultimately should be helpful to us as human beings mm. someday. Um, Can I just ask one little, yeah, no, no, let little baby question? Let her rip. <laughs> Got one. Well, it's not a little baby question, <laughs> but it's a, I'm wondering, because we talked about it while we were having our snacks before the uh, podcast, and we were talking about this the problem of smallpox that, that really decimated the population and thus decimated the oral history that was there. Yes. So knowing that that's sort of like a chink in the armor of this history. Culture amnesia, perhaps. Sure. And, and maybe that's just a part of it. And, that's, and, then, and then your people just accept that as a part of being people that do oral history. But now you, as someone, as a historian, you're gaining all these stories and you're learning more and more. Are you just going oral history or are you now writing it down and trying to preserve it in another way to prevent what's happened in the past. I think it's important to look at a combination of both. For someone who's written a book manuscript, as Steve knows, it's got to be the hardest thing I've ever tried to do and one of the coolest because it opens up so many doors. But um, hopefully it's going to be a combination of both that I can, in this research and in these teachings, that I can help others understand things that we've missed, just the understanding that there's a reason why we forgot so many things. The impact of colonization, impact of being acculturated into the American society. And there's, you know, a ton of history there and federal policies and a lot of it's really sad. But regardless of that, you can still own your own history. You can find the seeds that you, your people once ate and you can find them. Um, a quick nod to the land back uh, topic. I know that's originally how I was thought of um, in coming on to here. But one of the richest examples that I can say, not to do with public lands, it has to do with private lands. And one of the best examples I can point to was the author Roger Welsh, who's a longtime friend of the Pawnee. And in the process of the 150th anniversary of Lewis and Clark, um, he gave the Pawnee Nation um, some of his private land uh, out near Kearney, Nebraska. Oh, really? And uh, asked them properly what they wanted to do with it. And it was a really powerful moment. They said two things. They're traditional bands of chiefs. One was, we want to plant our corn, which they've done, and it's an incredible project. Deb Elkohawk and what she's done there is amazing. And two, they said they wanted to dance. But ultimately, that goes back to the call to arms. Um, what can people do who are interested in this topic and want to learn more? At the very least, wherever your family lands might be, um, your provenance is important. Perhaps your family has been there since homesteaders. Maybe they've been there for seven generations in Clay and Eugum, mm -hmm. Western Arkansas. Mm -hmm. But if you go and look, you're going to find a provenance so much deeper. And if you have it within your heart to find those people that used to live there, uh, welcome them back with open arms 
then only incredible treasures can await you and any American who wants to explore the provenance of this land and history. And it's only going to help us get along better and to have a richer history of the lands that we share. How do people find you specifically if they're curious about your book that you've worked on, if they're curious about Sacred Seeds, if it's other tribal members who want to connect with you and, and share notes, sure, share seeds? Absolutely. Um, sacredseed.org is the website for, for the project, and that's really what I'm wanting to support doing podcasts like this. But uh, you can find me on Instagram, TaylorKeen7. I mm. put up a lot of images of the corn and plant oh, you do? plantation. I'm get on that right now. <laughs> so Taylor Keen is a full-time instructor at Creighton. Am I saying that right? That's right. Creighton University's College of Business. Also the founder of Sacred Seeds. So if you want to find out more, I'm sure you can uh, dig in in that route. Can you repeat your Instagram handle? Oh, yeah. Hit us with that. Is it Taylor Keen 7? Taylor Keen 7. T-A-Y-L-O-R-K-E-E-N. The number seven. All right, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Yep. You got it, Clay? I've got one hit, last thing here hit that, me. I, that I wanted to share. Big old arrowhead. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh! Look at that. Whoa. Mm. This is uh, an ancient type of war club. Huh. And it was adorned by a member of my tribe. Those are objects that are used during our war dance for younger men than myself. But uh, I wanted to share that with you, Steve. Oh, it's beautiful, man. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Oh, like we get to have that in our studio? You do. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, was cool. this war club uh, um, made of wood? Back, yes. It was always made out of wood. Yeah, like a burl, typically. But its origins go back to a symbol of power in ancient Native America, the, the symbol of the mace. Hmm. What kind of feathers are these? All kinds of different things in there. There's some pheasant. There's some um, southern birds that are in there, some pretty colorful ones. Those are cockatoos, or I can straighten those out a little bit. I had to sneak it into my mm. bag there. But uh, oh, That's beautiful, man. That's cool. Uh, Very cool. Thank you, because we're... Uh, our, as our wall works around, we're gonna, that's gonna, we're going to find a good spot for that one. So would this be... Omaha or Cherokee? That would have been just a probably goes back to the Mississippian period because that symbol of the Mace of Power. So when we talk about it in the future, what what would we say? How would we describe this when a podcast guest goes, "What's that?" Uh, That's a war mace. A war mace Uh from the the uh, plains uh, traditions. The plains, okay. Omaha, Osage, all of us would have have used those. Great. But uh, you wouldn't want to get conked on the head with that thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> All right. Wow. Taylor Keene, thanks very much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for mm-hmm. having me. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. 
I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.